0: Welcome to a special election day edition of the Independent News Hour. We're excited to be hosting a special three-hour edition of the Independent News Hour today. In the headlines: New York City voters head to the polls to vote in the Democratic primary that will decide the next mayor and city council. Eric Adams denounces a last-minute alliance between Andrew Yang and Catherine Garcia. And New Yorkers celebrate Juneteenth in its first year as a federal holiday. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. New Yorkers head to the polls today to vote for a new mayor, comptroller, public advocate, and to fill all 51 city council seats. Polls will be open until 9 p.m. tonight. This will be the first citywide election which uses ranked choice voting. This allows voters to select as many as five candidates in each race in their order of preference. This is Lucas Shapiro of The Jewish Vote explaining why... This is the
1: first primary election that New Yorkers will be using a system called ranked choice voting to vote for up to five candidates per race in order of preference. While presenting some new challenges, ranked choice voting has also helped elect more women and people of color to office in other cities that use it. Here in New York City, progressive voters, candidates, and movement organizations have had to adopt new strategies this election cycle. As results come in today and in the weeks ahead, we'll have data and lessons to chew on as we evaluate how ranked choice voting can be a tool to advance our vision for a radically more just city through and beyond elections.
0: That was Lucas Shapiro of The Jewish Vote explaining why ranked choice voting is a good thing that progressive voters should take advantage of. More than 160,000 New Yorkers cast their ballots in the nine-day early voting period that ended on Sunday. Many others have voted by mail. Those absentee ballots will be accepted as late as June 29th, as long as they are postmarked by today. The New York City Board of Elections will release a preliminary tally tonight of first choice votes made by in-person voters. The final election results are not expected to be known until at least July 12th. Two polls released Monday show Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams leading the race with 28 percent of first choice votes. He's trailed by former City Hall lawyer Maya Wiley, businessman andrew yang former sanitation commissioner katherine garcia and comptroller scott stringer yang and garcia continued campaigning together monday in the hopes of winning the second choice votes of each other's supporters which could prove decisive in determining the final outcome of the race as no candidate is likely to win a majority of first-choice votes outright.
2: I would urge anyone who is supporting me uh, as their first choice, please do have Catherine Garcia on your ballot. I'm not co-endorsing.
3: We are campaigning together. I am not telling my voters what to do. I want them to get out there and I want them to use the system that we have for ranked choice.
0: That was Andrew Yang and Catherine Garcia speaking on the campaign trail. Adams has denounced Yang and Garcia's joint campaigning, saying it was a form of, quote, voter suppression intended to thwart a person of color from becoming mayor, even though Yang himself is Asian American. I
4: think there's a high level of hypocrisy. They both stated that they don't have the ability to run the city, but they came together, in my belief, to
0: stop. Maya Wiley in turn criticized Adams saying I will never play the race card lightly unless I see racism and I'm not calling this racism she said of the Yang Garcia alliance. Manhattan residents also vote today for a successor to retiring district attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. Alvin Bragg and Tali Farhadian Weinstein are leading in the polls in an eight candidate race that will not use ranked choice voting. The independents Ted Hamm has followed the race closely and says Farhadian Weinstein's spending millions of dollars of her own money to smear her opponents.
5: So what we're seeing
6: is a very well-heeled candidate using all of her resources and deploying some of the ugliest racial stereotypes against one of her leading opponents, Alvin
0: Bragg, accusing him of not wanting to protect white women. Ted Hamm will join us in the second hour of the show to talk about this more. In Washington, the United States Senate is scheduled to take up landmark voting rights legislation this evening. Earlier today, Democrats won the support of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin after narrowing their voting rights law more to his liking. The measure, however, is expected to be blocked by Republican use of the filibuster, which requires 60 votes to move most legislation in the Senate. Manchin and Arizona Democrat Kirsten Sinema have both refused to abandon the filibuster, even though it gives Republicans veto power over the Democrats' Senate majority. And finally, New Yorkers marked the first-ever Juneteenth federal holiday this weekend with celebrations across the five boroughs. This included the second annual Seneca March from Harlem to the former site of Seneca Village, a predominantly African-American settlement that was destroyed in 1857 during the construction of Central Park. This is Teresa Mark, one of the march's organizers.
7: The importance of this event was to bring awareness to the holiday Juneteenth. To bring awareness to March on Seneca, which is Seneca Village, um, a village that existed when Central Park, before Central Park was built. And unfortunately, it was kind of wiped out of history, and we haven't been taught this in schools.
0: Also in Harlem on Saturday, people gathered at the African Center Plaza for the second annual Juneteenth Jubilee put on by the Intersectional Voice Collective. This is Queen Jean.
8: So today really is a celebration and honoring in particular black, queer, black, trans individuals and truly intersection all across. People of color who have community, who have galvanized for community. And so this is our way to show that love back, to really give people their flowers and to really just celebrate with one another, with the community.
0: We'll have more on Juneteenth and the struggle for black liberation later this hour. And we'll be back with more election coverage after this short break. super quick. was Expect the Bayonet by Sheer Mag. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies editor in chief. You can find our recently released June print edition in our red and white news boxes across the city. You can also find us online at independent.org. In fact, today's independent news hour is going to be three hours long. We're excited to be hosting a three hour election special this evening as New Yorkers go to the polls in a historic election today. We have all kinds of great guests lined up, and we'll be having live reports from the field, from polling stations as well, a little later in the show. And today, co-hosting with me for the first hour is Natasha Santos. Tasha, welcome to the show.
9: Hi, John. It's great to be with you and with all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org.
0: Great. And uh, in our first segment today, we're going to talk about uh, ranked choice voting, the new system of voting that was uh, approved by voters in New York in 2019 and is being implemented in the primaries for the first time this year. Uh, Lucas Shapiro uh, wrote an article for our June print edition about ranked choice voting, how it works, how it came about. And uh, we're really delighted that uh, Lucas can uh, join us on the show today to talk about this. Lucas is also uh, very active with the Jewish vote, which uh, a group that's uh, endorsed a number of candidates and has also encouraged their Candidate dates they're supporting to uh, to cross endorse other candidates because in ranked choice voting uh, forming alliances and uh, broadening your coalition is often the path to victory. Maybe Lewis Lucas can talk about that more now. Lucas, welcome to WBAI Radio.
1: Welcome, Lucas. Thank you. Good afternoon.
0: So, um, just to get started here, uh, Lucas, uh, can you explain how? just explain a little bit more about how ranked choice voting works and, and how did New York city get ranked choice voting and where has it already been in effect? And um, why do you think it's a, a a good system to transition to?
1: Sure. Well, uh, New York has ranked choice voting uh, as of this election cycle. Uh, So this will be the first time in about a hundred years that we have a more kind of proportional system. Um, There was actually back in the thirties an opening where New York tried a modified system of ranked choice voting and proportional representation that actually ended up helping elect uh, several radicals to the city council uh, members of the American labor party at the time. Uh, And this is the first time since uh, many decades that we've been able to have a new system that allows more voices and more choices at the polls. Uh, A little bit of the backstory uh, in 2009, there was a very low turnout, uh, runoff election, uh, for the public advocate and comptroller races. Uh, and those races are very expensive to run a runoff election, um, especially with such low turnouts kind of prompted this bigger public debate around whether or not this system was the best we could, uh, come up with. Uh, and Gail Brewer, um, who was at that time a city council member had actually proposed the following year, uh, a bill to implement ranked choice voting. So they spent the next eight years um, on the Charter Revision Commission um, to kind of figure out what it would actually mean to implement uh, ranked choice voting in New York City. And that's where in the, the next year, in 2019, the Charter Review Commission put ranked choice voting before New York City voters in a referendum, and that passed by 75% of the vote. So, uh, it took a couple years to implement it, but here we are. And, uh, this is a momentous election day, uh, where, you know, we have more of the city's elected leadership up for grabs in many generations. Um, so hopefully we'll see some major progressive victories, but I'll, I'll say that, like, the, the, the left, the broad left as a whole, uh, and by that I mean, uh, movement organizations that are able to, uh, endorse candidates, the candidates themselves, um, there's been some hesitancy to really lean into ranked choice voting strategy. And it's been a little bit confusing, too, for voters to figure out how to fill out their ballots. So um, I suspect, expect that we will uh, become much more used to the system uh, in the years ahead. But we'll obviously be kind of chewing over the election results um, as they come in tonight and then over the next couple of weeks to really see what the impact of ranked choice voting was uh, across races up and down the ballot.
9: Hey, John, thank you so much. I'm sorry, Lucas, thank you so much for that history and context. Um, I think you really painted a clear picture on um, how things are working and how we got here. So now that we're here, um, do you sense that New Yorkers um, were becoming more clear about how rank, voice choice, voting, rank, voice, rank choice voting works um, as we got closer to election day? Because I know the, a lot of the folks I spoke to were really confused um, on how it works. Do you think people are more comfortable with it now that... Uh, there's been enough time for people to get acquainted and learn more?
1: Yeah, I think that confusion is warranted and to be expected for a, a new system. And, I, you know, there's some critiques of ranked choice voting, or sometimes people call it RCV, uh, you know, that it's already uh, hard to encourage people to vote. We have um, traditionally a pretty low voter turnout compared to many other countries around the world. Um, so some people say, you know, this was this is another barrier for people to um, able to exercise their franchise. But there's been some recent polling that showed that upwards of 80% of New Yorkers felt very comfortable, or New York City voters, uh, people who are who participated in, the, in, in this election cycle, that they felt quite comfortable with the process. Uh, and it's, I mean, some of that is because it actually, I think, creates more intrigue around the elections, uh, because people are not just thinking about who's their favorite pick. They're thinking about the range of candidates out there uh and how they want to structure their ballot. I actually even had some confusion myself around how they would tabulate the votes uh, and in different rounds of how they come up with um the winning candidate. Yeah. So it's totally understandable that people have some questions. Um New York City has done I think a decent effort to do voter education if you, you know, are a registered voter, you probably got some materials in the mail. Uh, there's been, you know, ads uh, on the subways and elsewhere uh, to educate folks, but I think, you know, more and more people will become much more used to the system and, and think about the political implications for it as well.
9: Yeah,
0: right. And um, Lucas, so I mean, we heard in the headlines of, about how uh, Andrew Yang and and uh, Catherine Garcia have uh, formed a essentially a ranked choice voting uh, alliance in the last few days. Uh, your thoughts on that, as well as the uh, failure of progressive mayoral candidates, uh, Maya Wiley, Scott Stringer, Diane Morales, to to form a, a similar coalition. Uh, Wiley has the strongest showing in the polls right now of the progressive candidates, but it seems like she's going to need to pick up a lot more support to make it to 51 percent at the end of this process.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the disparaging of the last minute alliances, um, well, in particular with Yang and Garcia's a little bit misplaced because we're actually, this is part of the reason for ranked choice voting is it should encourage uh, candidates to form alliances and to kind of broaden their appeal with different constituencies. So I think it's completely legitimate to, to pick apart the platforms of those two candidates um, who they represent and what's I think actually quite damaging about um, Yang and Adams in particular, but also Garcia's, uh, uh, policy platform, I think is is also much lack, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot to pick apart there. Um, but as far as like the progressive lane, I mean, this is something that the Jewish vote, which is the kind of electoral arm of JFREJ, which is Jews for racial and economic justice. Um, this is something that we were really trying to lean into. So we actually had done a ranked endorsement earlier on with Diane Morales as our number one and Scott Stringer and Maya Wiley as our share number two. So really trying to encourage progressive voters. These are the folks that you should be putting at the top of your ballot to kind of clear a progressive lane. Um, and also, I mean, this is part of the logic of ranked choice voting is you want to have the number two votes of, um, of other candidates, because uh, if you don't end up crossing the threshold to win, uh, sorry if if, if um, the other candidate doesn't cross the threshold their number two votes can come into effect and those can support you uh so this is something that you know obviously the quite a bit of Michigas, this uh especially on the the mayoral side of this election uh with some of the scandals that plagued the stringer campaign and then some of the internal turmoil, turmoil within diane Morales's um team themselves we actually ended up kind of uh, editing our endorsements to to put Maya Wiley is at the top of our endorsement ticket, but it is unfortunate that there wasn't more of a concerted ranked choice voting strategy across the progressive community, not just for the mayors race, which where those consequences are obviously quite high, but also, you know, the city council, some of the borough president races, comptroller, public advocate, etc.
9: Yeah, I think. Um... You made a lot of really good points, and this is a new system. So as our um, political candidates begin to navigate it, navigator, I think strategies will change, hopefully. But I, <laughs> um, you're you're way more knowledgeable on, on it than I am. Um, and as for your group, the Jewish uh, vote, um, how have they approached ranked choice voting?
1: So we really leaned into ranked choice voting. Um, you know, the Jewish vote is actually only a few years old as a C four organization. It's the kind of legal term for organizations that are able to endorse candidates directly. Uh, but this was like a substantial expansion of our uh, political footprint. Uh, so in the end, we ended up endorsing over 45 candidates, uh, many times more than one candidate running for the same seat. Uh, so there's actually a couple races where we endorsed three candidates um, for the same seat, uh, especially in a couple of council districts. And the logic there being, again, Trying to make sure that there's a clear progressive lane. There's there was over 300 candidates who were running for local office this um, election cycle. Sometimes there were like 20 candidates in the same race, so it was really hard for voters to really pick which is the one. There's often several really qualified candidates who have a vision for a much more radically just city, uh, and instead of having everyone kind of put their eggs in one basket. Uh, we want to showcase that there's several options in some of these races, uh, people that uh, we want to guarantee that there are one of those progressives comes out on top. And in a couple of races, we actually saw the candidates coming together um, and showing up in the similar spaces in a very camaraderie fashion. Um, instead of, you know, disparaging each other, those progressive candidates, I'm thinking of some districts like District 5 and 7, in Manhattan, uh, where the candidates that we endorsed, um, you know, were kind of helping team up to make sure that they were able to overcome kind of a more establishment machine backed candidate. Uh, and that's something that I think we, sh- we should have seen more of. Um, but sometimes it takes people a while to both get over their egos or their old political habits, um, and really, you know, step into what is a little bit of a gamble here too. Like we don't exactly know how it's going to play out in New York. Uh, But that's going to be something exciting for us to be looking at uh, as the polling data comes in tonight and over the next couple weeks.
0: Right. Yeah. It's a new system and, and we're not going to know the outcome of a lot of these races until at least uh, July 12th. Uh, So this is going to be a a process for sure, though, by the end of tonight, we should know the, the first choice uh, tallies for everybody who voted today, as well as everybody who participated in early voting. Um, And uh, so we're, we're going to leave it here in a moment. But uh, Lucas, uh, one other thing, I know you're very active with the the Mayday community space out in Bushwick and, and other community institutions out there. And I understand uh, there's going to be an election night uh, watch party uh, out in uh, Bushwick that you're a part of. Uh, do you want to tell us just a little bit about that? Um, and Absolutely. activist institution out there is uh, uh, coming back to life after the pandemic, I understand.
1: Yes, this is me switching hats from a partisan one to a nonpartisan one, uh, where Mayday space where I serve on the collective. Uh, we are co-hosting a election night returns party uh, at our sister space, Star Bar, which is, I think, the only nightlife venue in New York City that's explicitly dedicated to supporting social justice organizing. Um, we're going to be starting at 7 o'clock, uh, have local news on. Of course, you know, once the polls close at 9 o'clock, uh, that's when things will uh, hopefully get a little bit, uh, spicier and get some returns starting to trickle in, but it's a great place. If you want to be around other, uh, progressive voters, whether or not people feel like electoral, uh, politics is really their thing or how much they, you know, place other movement building strategies in their kind of theory of change it's a great place to be. We'd love to see you. There's drinks. There's food. Uh, and there'll be other people from another project that I'm connected to called, um, the People's Plan, uh, which is an effort to kind of build a, platform, a policy platform um, that's been crowdsourced by hundreds of different organizers and advocates across New York City to kind of uh, center a uh, bottom-up approach to what the next council and mayor uh, and the whole elected leadership across New York City could implement. So some of us will be there as well, and it'd be great, great to connect with any of the listeners here. So we'd like welcome you at 214 Star Street. Again, that's Star Bar with two R's, Star with two R's. At two fourteen Star Street, uh, we'll be there starting at seven uh, and probably going until around midnight.
0: Great, I love the Star Bar. <laughs> right, and that's off the uh, Jefferson stop on the L train. And uh, will there be an outdoor component to this, um, or will it be entirely indoor? Just there is who... also
1: an outdoors uh, seating area um, where people can bring drinks and hang out there. Uh, but I think we're going to be using the main wall in the back uh, to project. Uh, we have a huge projector and wall that we can put the probably the New York one or pix 11 news up um, for people to watch the returns coming in.
0: Okay. That sounds great. So both indoor and outdoor for uh, people uh, who uh, may have uh, COVID concerns or just uh, gotten accustomed to breathing outdoor air when they socialize with people. But uh, Lucas Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us this evening on uh, WBAI radio to talk about ranked choice voting and all the great work that uh, a Jewish vote has been doing.
1: Thank you so much, uh, and hopefully we'll have some good returns
0: uh, tonight and in the weeks ahead. You bet. Thank you. All right, we'll be back with uh, our next segment after a short music break.
10: Come gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone And oh, you'll sink like a stone For the times, they are a-changing I'm writers and critics Who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide The chance won't come again And don't speak too soon For the wheel's still in spin Telling who that it's naming was the loser, now will be later to win. For the times they are changing. From mm-hmm. senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall. Oh, he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled the battle outside region, will sing shake your windows and rattle your walls for the times they are changing.
9: Oh my goodness, what you never want on the radio, silence. My bad, everybody. Um, I'm Natasha Santos again, and you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I am Natasha Santos, an independent um, contributor. You can find our recently released June print edition in our red and white news boxes across the city. You can also find us online at independent.org. That's I N D Y P E N D E N T.org. I'm here with the Independence Editor-in-Chief, John Tarleton. Hey, John.
0: Hi, Natasha. It's great to be back uh, here uh, with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org.
9: Great. Um, We're also here with uh, Pastor Tabitha Holly. Hi, Tabitha. Hey, good to see you. (laughs) Nice to see you too. Tabitha is, uh, oh, sorry, Tabitha (laughs) is originally from Texas, I mean, Georgia. Tabitha, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm like all tongue-tied right now. I'm so sorry.
11: No, 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 it's fine. Um, I am from Georgia. I'm from Southwest Georgia, originally, uh, near the Florida border. Um, I came, I went to Spelman and then I came to Union Theological Seminary to um, get my MDiv and now I'm pastoring a really small and amazing church of organizers and educators and artists and dreamers here in the North Rocks. So I'm excited to be here. I'm sorry, I'm not muted. And yeah, that's a bit about me.
9: Yeah, I'm excited. We're excited to have you. Um, Juneteenth was celebrated as an official national holiday for the first time this weekend. Uh, 156 years after the Union Army arrived in Galveston, Texas to end the last bastion of slavery in the United States. So, one of the reasons Tabitha is joining us now is to discuss what that means and also to discuss, um, the, the, what it's like one year after the 2020 protest of the death, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, Pastor Holly, or should I call you Pastor or Tabitha? Tabitha's fine. <laughs> Tabitha, my first question: Where are we in this moment, um, in regards to Juneteenth, and also regards to the twenty twenty protests, the aftermath? Where are we in this moment, and
11: how did we get here? Mm, actually, big question. Really, really big question. Um, I think we're in a place where we are um, dreaming of what is possible. I think we are dreaming of what is possible. Um, what what could be better? Um, how could we improve our living conditions? Um, or at least that's what I feel about in my neighborhood, where I live now in the South Bronx. Um, and so while it is while um, while we while we are grateful for the organizers who who fought so much for um, for Juneteenth to be a federal holiday. Um, as we think about what happened last summer and we think about what we've been asking for, um, we need much, much more than a federal holiday. Um, we really um, need to think about ways of reimagining public safety for our people. We need to be thinking about, um, black people and their living conditions and their housing. We need to be thinking about black people and the, and the schools that black children go to, um, that they are fair, that they're equitable, that that children can learn without police being in the halls. There are, um, all these different concerns that need to be addressed. Um And then to say, and it, 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 to a lot of my peers, you know, I've just kind of been sitting by kind of like a fly on the wall, I think yeah. for the past, you know, couple of days. Cause I haven't been able to even grapple um with the fact that like, wow, like the government <laughs> um has really it, in some ways patted itself on the back. Uh, That's exactly how I was feeling with the
9: Juneteenth holiday.
11: Absolutely. <laughs> oh, look at us. Look at us. Yeah. We're doing, so oh, great by black people um and i'm like um we demanded so. equity <laughs> we demanded accountability <laughs> um so that's yeah, where about around juneteenth um and yeah yeah uh, that leads us
9: that leads me perfectly into our next question what were the demands for the, during the 2020 protests Ooh. and how have they been answered?
11: Yeah. So the dem- the demands were that we that we redefine public safety, um, that we redefine public safety. And particularly, you know, we really saw a shift um, and a change and we saw organizers say, all right, so it's about time out for this for this reform and it's about time for us to call for um, you know, some ca- have called you know for the abolition of police, and others are just saying let's just cut the NY- let's just cut police department budgets um, mm-hmm. significantly, and let's just redefine and reimagine public safety. Um, and so, um, I'm not going to speak to what's happening in other cities and other states, but I will say in the city of New York, one of th- what we know happened was <laughs> that the city council. Um, they quote unquote took money out of the NYPD budget, but then they reallocated money and put it into, um, into school police. Pretty much we call them school safety agents. And so a lot yeah. of young people over here in the Bronx have been organizing for police free schools because it's not safe to walk into buildings where there are police officers. It's just not. They're not trained um, to de-escalate violence. In fact, students are learning how to do restorative justice and students are learning how to to do processes and figure out um, what it takes to de-escalate um, situations where harm happens. Um, and so... That's what happened. I mean, I think in New York City, at least from my perspective, it feels as though you know the city council did that to us, and then they gaslit us a yeah. year later and said, "Oh, we did cut the the budget," you know. But in reality, they just really went and they terrorized Black students in this past year. Um, and, and I'm really curious about what's going to happen with this year's budget. Um, but yeah, that's what they did, at least in New York City.
9: Yeah, I I. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings on that, but I'm going to let John ask his question because it's only fair that John... <laughs> because,
0: yeah, I, um, yeah, actually, uh, since you, you mentioned city council and, and the, their failure to really uh, cut the police budget last year, we're now in a, a election day here where the, the leading candidate in all the polls is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who himself was a police officer for 22 years, uh, became a police captain in the NYPD and uh, still seems to really sort of see the world through the eyes of a of a cop. Uh, your, your thoughts on on why Adams has proven to be fairly popular, at least with uh, some voters and, and, and what it would mean if he did, in fact, go on to win this race.
11: Yeah, um I think that is um a very terrifying reality that I'm sitting in. Um and I'm re- I'm kind of reminded um and hope this is appropriate to say but I'm reminded of um the moment when um the moment when Kamala Harris was uh, was brought in to be the VP pick, um, and there was pushback from organ from Black organizers saying we need to be really thoughtful around her history, um, yeah. as it relates to her being a DA. And I think that in the same vein, you know, I think that identity politics, uh, while it in many ways in the past might have been helpful to us, I think in this moment it's going to be to our detriment. Um, and I think that as for why people might be going for this candidate, um, I think about you know I. I listen to sometimes older people like folks who are who consider themselves elders I listen to them talk about um, the war on drugs and 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 the 70s and the 80s and how terrifying that time was and so organizers you know even here where I live in the Bronx talk about you know what well, in the 90s in the 80s you know we had to figure out something because our the conditions of our neighborhoods were so bad um and so I think that there are a lot of people that are figuring that out that are still um that that cannot imagine a way beyond Public safety that does not encompass policing, mm-hmm. um, and I think that I think that Eric Adams is, um, you know, he's able to kind of say, well, not only was I a cop, but I was the cop that was the good cop, like I was a cop that was standing up, you know, against you know police violence. Um, but we all know, you know, <laughs> you know exactly, and we all know that at the end of the day, that the that the system. It, it harms black and brown people regardless of what, whether or not you were speaking out while you were in uniform. Um, but I think that, you know, when I, you know, I think that the engagement is um, it's really based, So it, it might be based on fear. It might be based on just his um, link to the establishment. Um, and, I, and I think it's a really scary reality that he might be um, the winner um, in the next couple of weeks, actually. Um, I'm, I'm really afraid about what that might mean for us.
9: For me, I'm just really surprised that a lot of our... Maybe not surprised, but I want... Disappointed, and I also want some explanation as to why a lot of our elder Black church-going folks are supporting him in the polls. Like, their numbers, their support has really bolstered and made um, his... A victory for him more likely. Why do you think... Why do you think... Especially after last summer and the... The... The ask, the 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 discussion on reimagining has taken place that there's still much so much support for Eric Adams and also uh Yang
11: absolutely i i again i think that um i've been in these con- these conversations privately but i think that again we think about um policy and the policy agenda and how you know, the war on crime, the war on drugs, um, those that those particular time periods for people, we you know, we saw that there were there were folks who said, Well, you know, you are the police the police are not coming to our neighborhoods. They're okay. going to every. they're not coming here to actually help us to think about um, you know, the things that are happening in our neighborhoods. I think that and I think that fear Ooh. is what folks like Eric Adams and 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 Andrew Yang are really riding on is that fear. And I think that um more spaces need to exist so that our people can imagine what public safety looks like and I think yeah. that though that that space just also doesn't exist. I think that you know we've had a year and you know we had more than a year inside the house. And so, you know, uh, the, the political education that we would be having access to the conversations that we want to be a part of, they're just not really happening. Um, because for the most part we are, you know, we are really isolated from each other, but I think that, you know, over this next year, um, I want to be a part of conversations with elders and just really be able to sit and and do interviews and, and do Bible studies and do, um, workshops and just do conversations with people and try to facilitate, um, just a container for us to talk about how can we actually have, uh, safe communities without policing and without militarization, uh, without weapons, how can we think about, uh, mediating conflict on our own blocks, right? Um, these, like, these things are, like, out of the question for people, and I think that we're so used to the police doing that work for us, um, mm-hmm. and we're so used to kind of, like, diverting to that, and so it, it's really hard to imagine something that is otherwise and that is better, um, but we, as, you know, I think that, that young people and organizers and some even older folks, um, Really, we are figuring this thing out and we are thinking about restorative justice in our communities and we are thinking about conflict mediation. Um, and we are thinking even about gun violence, right? Um, uh, we have folks who are, who already are thinking through this. Um, and so again, I think that Eric Adams and, and Andrew Yang are riding on, um, on the fears of the people about like, we're not going to be safe, you know, or, um, and we see what's happening. We see what's happening on the trains. We see what's happening with the opioid crisis. And I think that people are afraid of, of moving back into a particular era. Um, and just cannot imagine otherwise possibilities for safety. I
9: think what's surprising to me, um, when I hear, when I hear, and I've heard the same thing you've heard that like, we don't want to go back to the eighties and nineties where cops didn't come to our neighborhoods where there was a lot of danger and um, lack of opportunities. When I think back to those times, as someone who was raised during the in the nineties, I think that the cops didn't make me feel safe.
11: <laughs> they
9: <didn't laughs> when they did come to my when they did come to my community, they were arresting my brothers. They exactly. were arresting my father. They were um, pulling out guns and they were Putting me in foster care Mm -hmm. um and as an adult looking back at that time i think a lot of my lack of safety and access had more to do with the disinvestment in my community of brownsville of astoria queens of coney island than it did in um the police or maybe those or maybe those those two are really linked right there was as we invest more in police as a form of community safety but also as a form of social social work
0: social <laughs> um, control
9: exactly social, so social control instead of social work where we're mm-hmm. disinvesting or taking money away from um real networks of safety and community
11: exactly Uh, i just wanted to say also like i'm not taking i'm 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 being i'm actually being very nice and compassionate and what i really want to say also at the root of you know why a lot of black folks might be for very pro eric adams and andrew yang and in this public safety conversation it's just also respectability and then it's also that mean I mean, when I talk about respectability, I mean aspiring to be um, a particular part of the middle class and aspiring to separate oneself from from what it means to be hood or what does it mean to be, you know. And so I think I'm that I'm a you, good you, black I, folk. Yeah, exactly. I'm a good black person, so I don't do wrong anyway. I don't do crime anyway. So those people on the streets or those people who are having mental health crises, those people who are addicts, like they are in the wrong. Age. So they should be taken off and they should be jailed. They should mm. be treated at a particular kind of way um so that's the other things that some a lot of people i mean some people do aspire um to be that way and to think in that way and they don't they don't necessarily think about um the masses really um and what the masses need so yes what are
9: opinion. what are the black communities needs in this moment um in this election as we as people are head <laughs> to the polls or come back from the polls, what? Uh, have you heard or do you know are in a lot of black people's minds, um, especially after the pandemic? What do they need politically, socially? Um, yeah, what do they need? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. also what's on their minds? I, uh,
11: you know, I'm thinking about, you know, and I, am I i don't think about these things separately, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot about economics in this mm. moment, I'm thinking a lot about, um, about the fact that people lost jobs and the fact that a lot of people are not going to go back to low-paying jobs. A lot of people are not going to go back to, um, they're not going to go back to jobs where they don't have health insurance, where they don't have uh, benefit packages, packages that will allow them to live and survive and be in their best, in their fullest potential. Um, and so I think that, you know, there are a lot of ways in which, which this is an economic question. There are a lot of people who are thinking through, you know, how are they going to pay back their rent? You know, how are people going to put food on the table? Um, and, and even when I think about those particular, you know, health issues, I'm thinking about all these things and there's a lot of, there's pieces of legislation and there are, there are safety nets and there are things like, you know, the rental assistance program that I'm thinking about off the top of my head. But I, then I imagine, you know, for some black people, how are these people going to get access to certain resources if you're afraid of talking to your landlord? So for example so so there are there are things that are in place but I'm I'm worried about the bureau, the bureaucratic processes of receiving the resources that 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 we need. Um and so yeah I for the most part I'm thinking in terms of economics in terms of what black people need. I think that black people need food, shelter, and and, and, they, and black people deserve to thrive. And, and, and if we don't have, you know, our basic needs met now, I don't even, I don't even see a possibility for thriving.
0: Right. I mean, I, if, I, if I can just hop in here for a sec, just going back to something you were saying a little earlier, just uh, it made me think that, um, I mean, one thing we were maybe seeing in this election here, it, it, you know, is that the black community is not entirely a, a monolith. I mean, uh, we have three three black candidates in the race. We have, I mean, Ray McGuire, a former Wall Street banker. And then we have Eric Adams, the uh, sort of authoritarian uh, working class cop, as he likes to portray himself. And then we have uh, Maya Wiley, uh, much more, uh, a little more progressive politically, uh, certainly, than those other two. And um, I saw a tweet last night that kind of uh, broke my brain a little bit somebody made the point that uh, Eric Adams was trying to assemble an, a rainbow coalition of uh, uh, mm-hmm. outer borough uh, Archie bunkers of course Archie bunkers are sort of the art, art, archetypical uh, white uh, racist from the outer boroughs but that there, there's sort of this potential vote out there uh, of um, middle class homeowners of various uh, races that that live in the outer boroughs that um, are, are wary of defund the police and are more concerned about sort of holding on to what they have and not seeing it it disappear so i don't know talk about that a, a little bit Just yeah this that the, the the needs in the in the black community seem to be divergent there's people that are desperate and you know really struggling and um don't have much and and the, and the government really does very little or nothing for them. And then there's other people that are a little further along and, and and maybe they want to hold on to what they have. And then there's even people like Ray McGuire that have done really well. And um you know
11: well, I think that is sad. And I'm gonna say why I think that's sad. Um because the way generational wealth actually happens in this com in this country, um, the way that it actually is set up, um is that like it is set up literally on the premise of slavery. So if you, th- if we think about hundreds and hundreds of years of generational wealth that we have lost, there are ways in which black people will never, um, will never be able to be on the same level wealth wise as white people. Um, and so I think it's sad that some of us believe that we can somehow work our way um, out of being um, a particular class of black because that's just not the way, that's just not the way that wealth works.
9: <laughs> and way, yeah, it's not the way wealth in America
11: works. It's not the way like, it's not how any of this works. Exactly. You're just not going to work your way out really of being black and you're not, you know, you are not going to make, You're. it's just not a reality. You're not going to be a Jeff Bezos. A lot of people are, you know, buy a house, you know, and I think they imagine themselves as, you know, just somehow, um, you know, on a Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, like that, I'm just like, that is not, that's not your reality. Yeah. And in yep. fact, in the policies and the and the things that you think you're voting for that are going to help you, you know, they're going to put you further behind. And before you, I mean, before we know it, we're, you know, I, I, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, I think it's just sad. Um And I think it's going to be sad to see some of those people, um, see that their candidates are going to turn their backs on them. Mm. Um, and it's just gonna be sad to see. It's gonna be really sad to watch.
9: Yeah, one of the pastors at uh, Concord Baptist and I were talking, Candice, Candice Simpson, she said um, a lot of their support in the um, for Eric Adams in the black church growing community is because he shows up, right? He shows up, mm-hmm. like physically shows up in the way that other politicians don't. He doesn't, like he comes to events, he, like, they know his face. And I think they equate that with um, care or with <laughs> um, uh, similarities in politics or goals. I, It's not for me, but why do you think other candidates like Maya Wiley and um, the other progressive candidates aren't as well known in, uh, for Black people, especially as we, we are like, Trying to reimagine what community and um, New York City will look like soon, hopefully.
11: You know, I this is a hard question, but it is a real one. It's a real one that's happening in on the left. um, Mm. Is a lot of times these more progressive candidates um, they don't always show up. Yeah. When we ask them to come to events, they don't always show up in the ways in which um, I would like to see them. Um, and I say that as a progressive and as a person yeah. on the left. Um, it makes it harder. It does make it harder for us to convince our people to reimagine anything when these folks don't show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess, um, mm, and yeah. I think it, I think it's a, it's another sad reality. I think that we're, we you know we do see. We see we see certain classes, and we see you know um, I was gonna make a comment about um, the left and Dianne Morales um, and and the majority of folks that have been in that camp, mm-hmm. um, but there has been co- some conversation about. Um, why haven't we seen her in the Bronx, right? Why yeah. haven't we seen her in certain parts of Harlem? Um, and the question is, you know, is it because I, you know, today I was actually out canvassing and I was doing some work, you know, for poll visibility for, for a candidate that I really appreciate. Yeah. Um, and apparently someone walked by and was like, you know, why is Eric Adams not here in the Bronx? And the person said to them, well, the Bronx voter turnout is so low. Until a lot of these candidates say, like, what's the, why am I even going over there? Like, yeah. why am I even, go, why am I going to go to a place where, you know, you know, like I said about, like, I might quote unquote be wasting my time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's such, a, I mean, it, 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 at the end of the day, that type of thinking, um, you know, it really, it really says a lot to me about the way white supremacy works, right? Um, is to think about people in terms of numbers and not thinking about people in terms of them being people. Who deserve to be respected, mm-hmm. um, and who deserve to be paid attention to, regardless of what they can do for you, right? Um, what does it yeah. mean to to show up for a community um, because they need someone to, to show up for them?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I j- just to pop in here. I mean, I think when I mean, we ask, well, why hasn't you know Maya Wiley or Diane Morales been seen? And, and I forgot to mention when I was listening, to, listening to other Black candidates in the race. Uh, I mean, Diane Morales herself is uh, Afro Latina. Um, but I mean, these are both Morales and Wiley are first-time candidates this year. is the first time they've ever run for anything. I mean, Eric Adams was highly visible as a uh, you know a figure within law enforcement in the 1990s uh, with 100 um, law enforcement officers who care, and then later spent um, a dec- uh, I think six or seven years in the state senate, and he's been borough president for eight years. So this is a guy who's been on the scene. Uh, for for a long time, and he's he's made the rounds to all the all the civic clubs and political clubs and anywhere else he can, uh, you know, uh, uh, make himself seen and heard. So he's got a big head start, it seems to me, um, in, in this race compared to somebody like Maya Wiley. Maya Wiley is probably best known, and she served in uh, the De Blasio administration, but is best known for being a a commentator on MSNBC, a legal commentator. And I mean, think about who really watches MSNBC. I mean, it's probably not the people who are uh, uh, cheering on Eric Adams. Um, And uh, I I can't help but think, you know, there's one figure that we haven't heard from much at all in this cycle who could have had a huge impact. And that's a public advocate, Jamani Williams uh, candidate of the left. He's won citywide elections here in, in New York and he opted not to run for mayor, but, uh, he would have entered the race with a much higher name recognition and, and visibility than either Wiley or Morales, but he, he, you know, chose not to run. And that's a and, very
9: interesting choice on in his part, don't you think? I saw him at a lot of, well, some of the protests last year.
0: Um, he was incredible. He w- he acted more like a mayor than de Blasio. I mean, he was everywhere and, and was really a, a, a powerful force, um, both urging a certain means? amount of calm, but also, you know, demanding that the police be accountable, and, th- and then he's kind of stepped back some.
9: Why, why do you think that is? Um, John and Tabitha, why do you think like, why do you think Jemani has stepped back, um, and My- Maya has stepped forward, and Diana, and Diane, why have they stepped forward? Um, I think like, black women like, definitely have a voice in politics, like, need a voice, more of a voice representation in politics, um, and they may be better leaders than everybody else like that we've had so far but I yeah but sometimes
0: you gotta well. like work your way up the rungs i mean they're but both alice and wiley what's that
9: Jumani has kind of worked his way up the rungs and he hasn't stepped forward right he stepped back so who so when we think about progressive politics and changing um the changing of the guard what is it what is it um what does it mean when when the people you know well who like most expression politics don't run. Like, who do you vote for then, Eric Adams?
11: I also no. wonder how far... I also wonder how far to the left he he is actually ready to go. Ah, That's another... How progressive, point. yeah. Yeah, I wonder... Because I think that and this is a thing that I've been coming up against since this past year, mm-hmm. is a lot of people who are really... Um, really anti police brutality are still not quite ready to say we need to defund the police and redefine public safety um not everyone um, is ready to move in in a in the farthest direction and i think that like I think that it's, it's scary to make that step. And even as I think about who is actually who will outright say we need to defund the police and, and redefine public safety, the only person that I really see do that, well, there's two people. Of course, there's Diana Morales and there's Paperboy Prince. Paperboy um, <laughs> Prince has my vote. You know what? He does, though. I think we all vote.
0: get five votes today, so we can all yeah. vote for Paperboy Prince and, and maybe some other folks who have a chance as well.
11: I would vote for Paperboy
9: Prince over Yang or Adams. <laughs> like, my poster, like, Wiley, Paperboy Prince, Diane Morales. <laughs> I know a lot of people who have him up there in their top three. Absolutely.
10: Mm,
9: yeah. Because he, like, shows up um, in really fun new ways. Uh, and he's also progressive. hmm What do you see? Um, we have two more minutes. So... Really quickly, um, what do you see as the future of New York City politics for Black folk? Uh, and how does Tabitha Holly, Pastor Tabitha Holly, figure into that future?
11: Mm. You know, I, I I wanna say, I wanna kind of answer that question, like I wanna answer the second question first. Um, because I, what I want to do is I want to be a want to continue to be a part of the conversation and the crafting of the crafting of the conversations that black people will have in this next year mm. uh, about how how we live and how we make it um when we find out what happens in July and what we find out what happens today there are a lot of um there are a lot of city council districts that are that are very, very important. Um, there are, you know, and and I even find like given that we are so unclear about who will be um, New York City's next mayor, I think that. You know, these city council dishes are really going to matter. But I think that regardless of that, I just want to be a part of the conversation. I want to be in rooms where Black people are. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to really get to the heart of what is it that Black people are going through and facing. Um, and how how do we imagine something better for ourselves? How do we can continue to think about mutual aid? How do we continue to think about... You know, what we will do when the state fails us. Um, when, not if it's a when. (laughs) When fails us, what is our plan? Um, (laughs) what is our plan for survival? And we've been here before. Mm. Um, so that, that is, um, I know that black people are capable and amazing and beautiful and, um, and that, and that we, we have done this before. And I think we're going to be imagining what we're going to do again over this next year. Um, and I'm just excited about being a part of that conversation. Um, the, just the, the conversation about dreaming and imagination um, beyond what is.
9: Mm. Thank you so much, Tabitha. Um, Tabitha is yeah. the pastor of, uh, sorry, of, can you say your church again? It's the, the New Day Church in Northwest yeah. Bronx and open and affirming. Um, independent denominational community of organizers, educators, artists, young people, and dreamers committed to building the movement of God against the forces of empire. Um, Tabitha has been so wonderful and given us so much to consider and think about. You're invited back anytime. Uh, If you wanna catch up with uh, Tabitha, visit her at uh, the New Day Church. Uh, And speaking of reimagining and what it means, uh, Brooklyn for Peace will be having a workshop on the proposed legislations of the George Floyd Act versus the Breathe Act at the end of Jan- July. So if you'd like to join us uh, at that workshop, please check out our website. Uh, and I'm going to hand it over to uh, John because we're going to go on a little music break.
0: Okay, yes, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with our second hour of our election night special. Again, uh, Tabitha, thank you so much for joining us, and also Natasha Santos. Thank you for mm-hmm helping co-host our, our first hour of the show, and we look forward to having you uh, co-hosting uh, more more shows with us in the future.
9: Uh, thank, thank you, you. Um, Yeah, you guys have been amazing. Alrighty. Hi, Grandma. And Mommy. <laughs> right,
10: okay,
0: we'll be back ap- after this uh, short break, and we'll have uh, hopefully a field report, and we'll hear from uh, Tom Robbins, legendary journalist here in New York. <laughs> That was Don't Let Me Down by Marcia Griffiths. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM, and this is the Independent News Hour, our special election night edition. Actually, three hours. We're now entering the second hour of our show. And in a few minutes, we're going to go to a legendary New York journalist, uh, Tom Robbins, who will be joining us to share his analysis about today. Uh, but first of all, we, uh, we're going to uh, try to hear uh, from a voter or two in uh, Brooklyn, uh Amba Gagarian, are are you with us, Indie reporter out in the field?
3: I'm here and ju- I'm with Julia Thomas and we're in District 35 and Julia um, is ready to to do do a little interview with a voter that we have here.
0: Great. Um, if you could ask the voter to uh, share their name, if they only want to give their first name, that's fine. But we'd love to hear uh, how they voted and, and what their uh, concerns are when they went into the voting booth today.
7: Um, My name is Lydia. I'll give my first name. Um, What do you mean? How did I vote?
0: Can you tell us who you voted for mayor?
7: I'd rather not.
0: Okay. Um, And and when you did vote, what what were your top concerns as you evaluated the candidates?
7: Uh, My top concerns were bringing programs back into the city after the rough year or year and a half that we've had. And also, um, Crime is a big issue for me, as I was someone who took the subways, and now it seems like crime crime is rampant. So that was a big concern of mine. And
12: and Lydia, uh, you know, this is also the first time New York has ever had ranked choice voting. What was your experience like, and how did that this new system also shape the amount of research that
7: you did on candidates? Um, I think it's a good system. It may be confusing for some, but. It was I felt like having more choices uh made me happy that we would have more options and that, you know, if you just picked one or two, it was it's not over. You know, um I know it's gonna take a while to get the rankings in possibly if there isn't a fifty percent majority but I think it's a good thing. I like the new system.
12: Right. And how do you think also the fact, you know, the reality of the pandemic this, you know, over the last few months, you know, you you're a native New Yorker, uh, usually, you know, I mean, of course, the candidates have still been out in the field, you know, campaigning a lot on a grassroots level this year as much as possible, but it's a bit different than normal election years, election cycles, I guess, in your experience, how was your, you know, did you sort of interact firsthand with, you know, people in your district with candidates? And I guess, what was your experience like just thinking about sort of as a voter, um, just
7: getting that FaceTime and kind of uh, firsthand experience with candidates? Um, I didn't get any face time or firsthand experience with candidates. It was more with speaking with coworkers or speaking with neighbors. Um, a lot of literature was given out, uh, things on facebook which sometimes you take seriously sometimes you don't reading news articles uh, and that was mostly what you know i went with this year right and you know just
12: thinking about i guess you know uh also just elaborating a little bit more on your concerns and priorities um i guess are there particular um you know thinking about this district are there particular um positions or um you know that you're particularly think are really important that you would like to you have strong opinions about who
7: should be elected um no I just hope that everyone works together I know there are a lot of promises made before people are in office but afterwards I hope that everyone can get on one accord to get us back um get us back where we need to be there are a lot of programs that were dropped. There are a lot of concerns that neighbors and, and people who are in and out of the area have. And hopefully they will come back into the area or speak to us again, moving forward and get some work done.
0: If if I can uh, pop in, Lydia, um, yes. just to follow up on the, what you mentioned earlier, your concern about crime and and. You said the subways felt more dangerous. What would you like to see the next mayor do about uh, crime?
7: Um, you know that's a tough one. Uh, you can't put a policeman. I don't believe it's feasible on every train, but maybe in every few stations. I, I don't know. That's a hard one to answer. Okay. But something has to be done. Um, you know I tend not to go back out at night because just too many things happen. So when I come in from work, pretty much I'm in, it's uncomfortable now. And I think that may be an issue going forward with visitors, with people who live here. So they need to take care of that as New York opens back up.
0: Okay. Well, we, we thank you for sharing your your time and your thoughts with us here on WBAI radio. Thank you. All right. Well, Amba and Julia, uh, thank you for your good work out in the field. We hope to hear from uh, more voters um, uh, at the half hour. And um, moving on to our our next guest is uh, Tom Robbins. He uh, ordinarily hosts a 6 p.m. show on Mondays on WBAI Deadline uh, NYC. Uh, he is also uh, for many decades. Uh, Reporter for The Village Voice, really one of the great uh, journalists here in, in New York City. Was, he and Wayne Barrett were really the twin anchors of The Voice for so many years, so much uh, great work they did. And, uh, you know, Tom has probably forgotten more about uh, New York politics than many of us will ever know. And, uh, Tom, it's uh, so great to have you join us tonight on this uh, Election Day to, to share your uh, perspective
13: well, you know, I, I want to caution the readers that, or the listeners that all that kind things that John says is, you know, it's very kind, but I, I it's not quite on money. I, I've i forgotten so many things that, uh, you know, it surpasses what I ever knew. It's true. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's funny. You, you talk about the work that Wayne Barrett and I did at The Voice. I missed The Voice in this election a great deal. You know, I just... It's not so much the voice itself, because they're trying to come back. But like the way that we would try to go at these races, John, was was early on, try to look at each one of the candidates and just try to see, like, what is there about them that we don't know and that we should know? And I'm so struck by the fact that a lot of the press was very late to that game. You know, it was only just over the weekend that we saw a, a fairly decent story about Eric Adams' role uh, in the NYPD in the New York Times. There'd been an earlier one in the city, the online edition, but that's such a really important issue for people to understand. And I, that that was the kind of stuff that, that Barrett and myself and, and others at The Voice did back in the day. And, and so I, I sort of missed that kind of uh, aggressive sort of deep dig approach. To this race, because there was so much there that I thought people needed to know and, and didn't hear in a timely fashion.
0: And, and speaking of the front runner, Eric Adams, uh, it, yeah. it, what do you think uh, people should know or, or maybe barely know about him? Uh, I mean, well,
13: I, you know, I think there's a lot of confusing information. I mean, he's an incredibly attractive candidate in many ways. You know, he, he's a vigorous, young, appearing 50-something man who's served 22 years in the police department. And he joined the police department by his account for, for the best of reasons. Reverend Herbert Doctry encouraged him to go in to see the impact that he had. And yet, what role did he play? What What, what was he doing there? I mean, I think that there's, there's, we, we, we enter this last day of voting with a huge number of questions about him. Look, he was a Republican for four years. You know, For four years during the Rudy Giuliani administration here in New York, uh, Eric Adams thought of himself as a Republican, and he endorsed Giuliani's pretty draconian approach to policing at that time. And, and and that's something that I, I think, you know, at least bothers me in terms of trying to come to terms with like who he is today. Um, I think that he, he projects a great vigor and uh, and intelligence and concern for voters. But um, this last minute effort that he launched to try to condemn his two of his leading opponents for engaging in voter suppression, I. I was completely thrown aback by that, that he would throw that term into the race. It was clearly an attempt to try to galvanize black voters with the, you know, the saying, you know, really a to the gut punch on that. But I, I just, it didn't seem to be based on anything real. It was just something he was throwing out there. So that, that certainly made me uneasy about the qualities that he might bring to City Hall if if he's the victor here.
0: And he he's a, in many eyes seen as a, a machine politician, what, um what would it mean to have uh, someone who's so deeply tied to sort of all these institutional actors in the in the Democratic party in the labor unions and in, in the real estate industry um, to have somebody really that enmeshed, uh, I guess what are the pros or cons? Well, we're, we're kind of used to it.
13: That's a good question, John. But you know what? The funny thing is, is that our current two term progressive mayor was supported by that exact same machine that we're talking about now. You know, Frank Settio, the former chairman of the Brooklyn Democratic Party, was a huge de Blasio supporter. In fact, he gave him mortgages on his homes right after he won the primary. You know, uh these are the same people that we're looking at today who are getting a little concerned about supporting Eric Adams. Uh Frank Zedio, Frank Caron, the council for the Brooklyn Democratic Party. That's kind of what we perceive as the machine, as it were. Although those guys haven't really won much, many races in the recent past, but it could, it could be a matter of true concern because, you know, uh, lobbyists and, and those trying to pull their interests in City Hall are, are going to move heaven and earth. I mean, we can see that with the huge amounts of money being spent on the, uh PACs, the special political action committees that are allegedly separate from the candidates. They're now, right now pouring millions of dollars into Eric Adams' campaign, as they are into others. But clearly, there's, there's an agenda there, and we should be concerned about what that agenda is.
0: And what do you make of the uh, NYPD, in a certain sense, sort of coming back in fashion uh, one year after the massive uh, George Floyd uh, protests and all the demands we heard this time last June for uh, cutting the police budget by a billion dollars or more and, and re-envisioning what policing uh, uh, should be here in the city. And now uh, we, we have law and order candidates like Adams and, and Andrew Yang and, and, and Catherine Garcia has also made it clear that she's not going to shake up the police department very much at all. What do you make of the way that sort of the NYPD is, at least in this sort of uh, public perception, it has uh, rebounded in and in, um, being pro-police is, is now seems like a a winning political isn't it position. Isn't
13: it? Well, I, I we'll see how winning it is, but I, I I mean I think with all those candidates you just mentioned, there are variations in in what they're calling for. I think you know Eric Adams has has clearly tried to articulate a policy in which he's talked about bringing back some of the tactics that were considered pretty odious and uh, prohibitive by people stop and frisk to some extent, Uh, the anti-crime squads to get guns off the street. It's interesting, John, because we do sort of ricochet back and forth between these two extremes, don't we? You know, a year ago, we were literally trying to figure out some way to really south, cut the budget of the NYPD in such a way so that they didn't play such an integral role in the everyday lives of people in in working class communities. And now, uh, like the the, the the voter you just talked to, I mean, her impression at least, the impression is that crime is rampant now look crime is a is a huge consideration I mean look when you've got kids getting shot in Times Square just for you know hanging out there you know for like between two brothers having a shootout that's a bad thing we've had you know an enormous increase in in shootings and in, and in homicides that's that is a true concern but have we forgotten everything does that really mean that we don't really know what what some of the solutions are have we do we get nowhere with our the long debates that we have in the interim before we bounce back to the like let's put more cops on the street position it's quite extraordinary to watch i think
0: right we're going to have a, another guest later in the show um who who uh, um julie holler um from uh, fairness and accuracy in in reporting from fair she published a piece uh, yesterday looking at how the the tabloids have really uh, you know, doubled and tripled down on the crime narrative uh, while saying very little about the crisis in affordable housing and the way that sort of public consciousness is, is shaped by these media narratives. Uh, when you think of all the people uh, who are struggling to keep a roof over their head and, and what they go through, yet crime gets uh, so much of the focus. What's your sense of the impact of uh, the tabloids and, and and just sort of the media ecosystem in New York in 2021 compared to times past,
13: it's such a faint shadow of what it was, John. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, both the Post and the News have have, have promoted crime stories in a way. Is that is that justified? If you're right there and you're on the scene and it happens on your block in your neighborhood, you you may well think that that's a major story and that deserves. And in terms of the kind of terrible crime that we lived through in, in past years, no, it doesn't it doesn't even come close. But I think the important thing to recognize is that both our tabloids, the New York Post and the Daily News, they they just they wish they had the clout that they want. I can't even afford to buy a copy of the Daily News anymore. You look at the on the on the. On the newsstands, if you can find one, it's like three and a half bucks just to pick up a copy. Nobody does that. They look at it online if they look at it at all. But, you know, speaking of the (laughs) tabloids, I think one of the most fascinating things today is the front page of the New York Post, which is a full page ad for Eric Adams. (laughs) This is Rupert Murdoch we're talking here. right? (laughs)
0: Hasn't this sort of been a a Murdoch uh, M.O. for many years? I mean, I understand he went all in for Ed Koch in 1977. Yeah, but that was Ed
13: Koch. He was a white Jew, John. We're talking about a black guy from Brownsville in Jamaica. And and here's Rupert Murdoch saying, give, you know, vote to save New York. Yes. I mean, yeah, to the extent that Murdoch always tries to influence elections. Absolutely. Mario Cuomo used to have a great quote. He said, you know, like, you might get the endorsement of the Times, you might get the endorsement of the Daily News, but when you get the endorsement of the New York Post, you get the front page and the whole damn paper. You know, (laughs) I mean, That's the way they operate over there. You know, it's not an honest situation. But that's a very telling front page to give away your front page on the day of the biggest voter turnout in the city to say, vote to save New York as though New York really needed saving. And this is the man to do it. It says pick pick Eric Adams. That's what it says right on the face of it. I mean, that's an amazing thing to me. I could not have imagined that that would happen for a black candidate running a long a while ago. That's that's a change. Do I think it's a good thing? No. I don't. I think it's a scary thing.
0: Right. And, and and speaking of voter turnout, I mean, voter turnout in Democratic primaries has been declining for for many years now. And and uh we'll see how it goes today, but what what's your sense for why that uh turnout and participation's been declining? I mean, New York is now an overwhelmingly Democratic city and it was a center of the resistance to Trump during his time in office. But the local politics, the interest has tapered over the years.
13: Yeah, Yeah. well, you know, first, I mean, starting with today, like, I mean, I don't know, I, I heard Ben Max said, like, as of four o'clock, there were some 400,000 people at the polls. Let's assume that, like, between now and nine o'clock, there's another two or 300,000 that get there. You know, you might end up somewhere as around seven hundred, eight hundred thousand 800,000 people. That that wouldn't be out of line from what we had in the last couple mayoral primaries. But yeah, the off overall has been extraordinary. And now we're the extra weight on people of a june primary we've never done this before this is an absolute this is a first we've never sent people to the polls they're not used to voting in the spring they vote in the fall that's you know we go through a long summer campaign and then right after labor day we vote we're not doing that now this is a very different thing for new yorkers and then you've got ranked choice voting which look is as easy as one through five yeah but, you know, I can tell you that for these uh, tired old 72 year old eyes, like just being able to find those bubbles, <laughs> all those columns, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Some people are going to have a little bit of a problem with it, even though, oh, how can you not have a problem with it? It's one through five. Well, I think that there's some people who are going to watch people today at my polling place. You know, it's like it's going to take a while. I think it's a good thing, but I think it's going to take some getting used to. And some candidates will probably suffer because of that. But your broader question as to why why that incredible turnout? You know, I think that New York has become so much focused on national politics, so much of what happens in New York, it's shaped by what's happened nationally, you know, uh, that we spend most of our political energy focused on who's in the White House, who's in the Senate, who's in Congress. And we, unless there are some really sharp issues that are dividing New York, riots, as we saw in the 93 election, when the impact of the Crown Heights riots really was the sole reason that David Dinkins lost to Rudy Giuliani, 93 or at 89, when David Dinkins beat Ed Koch in the primary after uh, Yusuf Hawkins was killed, you know, black youth shot down in a white neighborhood. You know, these are these are the things that fuel outrage. And, and even then, the bump, you know, only brought us up to about 60 percent or something. So, you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. But uh, the other thing that we're going to have to sort of figure out, I think we need to take a look at campaign finance, how it's working. You know, I mean, we have I think that this election, this mayoral election, John, might have been a little simpler had some of the candidates who clearly I don't think are going to do very well been forced to drop out. But they won't drop out because of two things. One is because, well, right-choice voting, they still have a chance, right? They might get voted as number two or something, so maybe they can come from behind. So why not? Right. out?
0: Everybody can be a winner.
13: Exactly right. And the other thing is eight-to-one matching funds. You know, there's like there's very little incentive. So that sort of takes us out of the realm of a certain kind of political reality. Like, say, you had in the Democratic primary where, you know, the other candidates eventually they had. Oh, I didn't you know I got to pull out now. They they weren't under that kind of pressure this time. And that's I'm not sure that's a great thing for a democracy. And so we have what is it, a total of 14 on the ballot, 15, I forget, but eight real contenders. And that's still that's a lot that's a lot to to think about for people.
0: Right, it's true. It's a lot to focus on. Uh, um, Also, I mean, certainly for the left, uh, I I think it's been despairing of of this uh, mayoral race uh, for uh, the last month or two as some of its leading candidates have imploded. Uh, But, um, well, actually, I wanted to just backtrack, um, given your history in journalism, uh, with with Scott Stringer and, and his campaign that, uh, really was derailed by the sexual misconduct allegations by Jean Kim. Uh, yesterday, we learned, uh, from the Columbia Journalism Review that, uh, you know, Kim's, uh, attorney had reached out to the New York Times to try to interest them in her allegations against Stringer. And the Times had passed on the story because there, there wasn't any corroborating, um, evidence, which is sort of that was their standard for, you know, running a, a, a Me Too story. And, and instead, the uh, attorney P- patricia pastor and Gene kim just held a press conference in front of city hall and that you know pretty much dynamited uh, stringer's uh, uh, campaign but in in the aftermath of that uh, when the new york times was reporting on uh, the the allegations against stringer they they never mentioned that they had uh, you know seen these uh, allegations beforehand and had declined to follow up on them again for that lack of evidence your, your thought on just the journalistic, uh, I guess, ethics and practice here uh, with the Times, well, you know, given this uh, sequence of events that unfolded, with them knowing that they weren't even interested in the story, then it becomes a big story, and then they the, the way they I, covered it afterwards.
13: I I I don't know that the sequence of events as laid out in that Columbia Journalism Review are, are 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 accurate. As I don't know if there's a Times response in that story, John, or not. There, there is not. Yeah. See, I mean, look, if if it did happen, as, as you just described, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You would include at the minimum a paragraph that would say uh, the Times was given an opportunity to uh, write about this issue but declined because of not lack of corroboration. Yeah, that would have been something to say. Would that have had impact, though? That's another question. I mean, look uh kim thought that the times would be the ticket to making this a big story you know and would be able to sort of get the her story out for whatever reason she wanted instead she had a news she couldn't have asked for a bigger impact than she got could she I mean, as you said she upended his campaign right there and then you know and it took people weeks what The first piece, I think, was in The Intercept, which went back and did the, the basic minimum that you would expect a reporter to do to talk to people who knew them both at the time this was allegedly occurring. And The Intercept came up with a very different description of events. And then, you know, when the lawyer and, their, and her client declined to start answer questions, you know, look, I.
0: So I, what does it say about the state of uh, journalism? At oh, the moment?
13: we're lousy. Oh, forget it. <laughs> uh, what can i tell you look i mean this this stuff is not new you know i don't I, I don't think that this is a big slide downhill you know usually we don't see them in the glaring light of day this way but you know there are there are felonies committed by the mainstream media you know we know this you know where they try to you know go one way and then do a 360 and claim oh i never heard that before like this happens all the time but But I I think that this is sort of a teachable moment in a way, and maybe we can come back and look at it again, because I I hold no card for for Scott Stringer. I wrote lots of stories about him back in the day when when I thought that he and his clubhouse were sort of feasting on political patronage on the West Side from the judges that they put in office. I I, I appreciated his his turn to the left and to become Mr. Progressive, but I'm not sure I completely bought it. But anyway, that's that's my way of saying I do think that he was – somewhat of a victim here. But, you know, he's such a he's such a schlepper. He couldn't come up with a way to respond. I mean, I listened to him on Brian Lehrer and he he couldn't even really remember the exact dates of what his relationship with this woman were. He's a victim, I think, to some extent of his own just messy life and thinking. So I don't I don't feel a lot of I don't feel any pity for him, you know, but could the media have done a better job? You betcha. You betcha. Surely could have and should have.
0: And and, uh, given that the the mayoral race has sort of gone off the rails for the left, I mean, people are, I guess, sort of hoping that uh, Maya Wiley might have a a strong showing and breakthrough, but that's probably not likely. But there's a lot of down-ballot races, uh, Comptroller with Brad Lander and and dozens of city council races, including a half-dozen races where the Democratic Socialist candidates have mounted really strong campaigns. Can you give us a sense – I mean, if progressives win at comptroller and and get a, a strong block of people into the city council, how much of, of an impact could that have in a system where the mayor really still has tremendous power?
13: Well, I guess if they had a supermajority in the council, they could overcome a mayor veto That's the that's the key thing. But I, you know, I would just say this caution, and I say this mindful of the fact that I'm talking on WBAI to many committed progressive voters. We, I think you know we need to think about this term a little bit. We, we are finishing eight years of a quote-unquote progressive, capital P, mayor. That's what Bill de Blasio ran as. That is his first and formal and most beloved description of himself. And yet, I think you'd be hard-pressed to really find people beyond a couple of accomplishments who think that that's the model of politics that they want to follow. So, you know, we we have people, if we're going to define them as progressive, I think they're sort of all over the map. You know, I mean, I'd love to feel great about Maya Wiley. I understand that she's a progressive as that. But I have a lot of questions about her resume that just don't make sense to me. You know, I just I don't understand. I never read one story about. Her longest professional association with a nonprofit that was devoted to promoting diversity. It may have done a magnificent job, but I would have loved to have heard about what it did. And was she a good boss? I, I still never heard what I thought was an honest response to the question of why and where and how do they come up with this agents of the city characterization to try to avoid providing transparency to reporters trying to get emails from de Blasio's cronies. I mean, there's tape of my wally at the mayoral press conference explaining what agents of the city are. It's a complete fiction. Somebody made it up. I'd love to know, was it her? What did she think of it? She's never really answered the question. CCRB, you know, the Times had a pretty good story, I think very late in the game about what her role was there. But a lot of people seem to have had a lot of criticism that she didn't make use of it enough. So yeah, she's got the progressive mantle, but you know, I think you've got to ask, well, what, what is she able what did she do? What, how, how capable is she? That's a key question. Honesty is important, I think, no matter what you call yourself.
0: Right. And and why do you think, uh, I mean, de Blasio, his administration unfolded the way it did. I mean, it kind of started with a burst of activity around the, the pre-K, which uh, is widely seen as a success. And, Um, he fell in love with himself. What was that?
13: He fell in love with himself. (laughs) He started running for president almost immediately. He really was more interested in Bill de Blasio after he accomplished a very great accomplishment for New Yorkers. I think, you know, pre-K will succeed him. We've got that. And I agree. Uh, The $15 an hour, the increase in the minimum wage, that'll succeed. And that's a great accomplishment. But he then took his show on the road immediately and tried to, edge his way into the 2016 campaign, declared himself as a candidate for 2020. I did a story for the New Yorker last summer, which I talked to people who were in his administration and they were talking about how much time they wasted talking about his campaign and and who was going to come to his forums and whatnot. He, he simply fell in love with himself every morning he looked in the mirror and he saw the next president of the United States. So he stopped thinking about New York and that's, look, that's an occupational hazard. You're the mayor of the biggest city in America and you're the America's mayor, as they like to call themselves. But but that's a fatal flaw. That is really a LaGuardia never thought of himself as a presidential candidate. I don't believe you've got to You've got to love New York enough to say, look, I'm going to stick with it and do the job. He did not.
0: Right. I mean, uh, our last few mayors have all sort of had this uh, presidential uh, delusion.
13: Well, Rudy caught it after he left. Bloomberg got it while he was there. Bloomberg was seriously interested in it. But, you know, he was Mike Bloomberg and he was a billionaire. So he never had to say he's sorry. <laughs> uh, he never had to apologize for anything.
0: Certainly not. Uh, well, we'll we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Tom Robbins, uh, thank you so much for joining us this evening on uh, WBAI, on the, our uh, election special edition. It's really great to chat with you about everything uh, we were able to get to. John, thanks
13: for letting me blather on. I appreciate it very much. Take care.
0: Okay. Thank bye. you so much, Tom. Bye bye. All righty. Um, I think uh, before we uh, go to a break, uh, uh, Zion Decato, another one of our reporters in the field, I, I think he's with a, a voter. Zion, are you there? Okay. So maybe that's not quite ready to happen. I'm here. I'm here. Okay. I'm hey, here. Zion. Uh, can you tell us uh, where you're where you are and um, and uh, do you have a, a voter uh, that can uh, yes. talk
5: with us? So I'm here at the Brooklyn Public Library in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and I'm here with you can just first
0: Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer.
5: Yes. So, um, Jennifer, do you mind just telling us, like, what were some of the issues that were important for you? in Well,
8: right now it's been like the covid and like, you know, the lack of jobs because I had lost my job due to the pandemic. So that was like one of the big issues was that if they got to fix it right now, yeah.
5: Would you mind telling us who you voted for?
8: Um, Eric Adams.
5: So like what were some of the choices that influenced you when it came to Eric Adams?
8: Um, I read what he said and then I liked what he proposed. But like I said, we never know because you know you can say one thing and then do the opposite. So everybody was telling me not to vote for him, but I just did what I what felt self was for me. Okay. Yeah.
0: And, and, I, and uh, Jennifer, did you did you uh, vote for other people on, on your ballot? You could cast as many as five Maya? votes.
8: I don't know how to say how they've yet.
0: Oh, Yada? she
5: voted for Maya Wiley as well, if you can hear me. Okay. Wrote, yes.
8: I, uh, on the um on one of the ballot, well one of the slides that I got from her, they put Y yeah, they called okay. her name wrong so everybody was trying to figure out how to say her name yeah so and like
5: in people that you know who who was like the candidate that was getting the most uh the most favor among like people that you know relatives coworkers. workers right, yeah you know yeah. why that is no.
8: okay. yeah, i guess it's one of the issues like she's a female so they want to see a change yeah so all right
5: all right so thank you so much for your time
8: you're welcome
5: mm. So, if you guys are still on with me, um, we just went to Jennifer. She said that she voted for Eric Adams, and then she put Maya Wiley as her second choice. And so far, here in Flatbush, Brooklyn, we the, there's not a long line, but there's a steady stream of people coming in and out of the Brooklyn Public Library. And we've, you know, and a lot of the people that we've spoken to, they've said that a major concern for them is crime and how you know COVID affected the city. So that was reflected in Jennifer, who just said that she voted for Eric Adams, because that has been a lot of uh, Mr. Adams' talking points during the campaign, which was in fact, you know, how to manage crime in the wake of the coming back from the pandemic.
0: Great. And and we've also got uh, Amma Gagarian uh, uh, with us. Uh, she's also out at a polling station. Uh, Amma, can you tell us uh, where you and uh, Julia Thomas are right now? And uh, if you've got somebody who can uh, join us.
3: Hi, we are in Clinton Hill here, and um, we are on Gates Avenue, and we have a voter here with us who just voted. Um, tell us your name.
14: My name is Jovito Wilson.
3: Yeah, and Jovito, how old are you?
14: I'm 22 years old.
3: 22 years old. That's great. And we are in 31R for the district, Clinton Hill. And uh, how long have you lived in this neighborhood?
14: I lived in this neighborhood for 22 years.
3: Okay, and what do you think this neighborhood needs from the city going into these elections in this pivotal time?
14: Um, We need basically support, you know? We need a lot of support from um, our community and the people.
3: And uh, do you mind sharing who you ranked first for for mayor?
14: I voted for Maya Wiley.
3: Um, Why did you vote for Maya Wiley over the other candidates, particularly Yang and Adams, who are the other sort of front runners?
14: Because I like what she stands for. I like that she's trying to get back to the neighborhood and she's trying to get back to the people that can't provide for themselves, particularly the ones that have been, uh, you know, prosecuted in jail and stuff like that. I feel like they need an equal opp- opportunity to get jobs as well.
3: And you had mentioned how sort of her perspectives on housing, um, and other things you think will actually Reduce the crime rate. Could you just explain that a little bit again in your own words?
14: I feel like if people have places to live and jobs, they, the crime rate would be lower because they have something, they have stuff to do to occupy themselves, and they also need to provide for their family. And I feel like everybody needs to provide for their family, and if 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 they can't, they will resort to other things that wouldn't be like not so civil. So.
3: Well, thank you so much. Uh, Your name one more time?
0: Jovito Wilson.
3: Thank you so much, Jovito Wilson. Oh, and it sounds like we have our host, John, who might want to ask a question.
0: Yeah, um, Jovito, just real quick. um, In your district, I believe you're in District 35?
3: 31R. We're in Clinton
14: Hill.
0: Okay. So um, your city council election, do you remember who you voted for in that? my city
14: council? No, I
0: actually don't. Okay. All right. Well, we we thank you for sharing your thoughts on the on the mayoral race. Um another another nope. voter who supported uh, Maya Wiley. Mm-hmm. We've heard from uh, Maya Wiley supporters and Eric Adams supporters so far. Um Ahmed is, is there anybody else there or should we move on and come back at um, at the top of the hour to hear from more voters?
3: Just us out here, John.
0: Okay. All right. Well, th- you guys are doing a great job and and thank you so much for for bringing the uh voices of some of uh, New York's uh, voters today
3: no problem and, thank uh, you
0: all right you. right on thank you for joining us on WBAi um so we'll be back in, in a moment after a short music break uh, with, with our next guest
10: everybody recording live from somewhere Low. Cool. Follow me now, listen. Say hi, Dick. Get you rolling, hip hop. Say J-Rolls is are ruling hip-hop no, Read up. the hip-hop. Your say you're ruling hip-hop black Blackstone comes to rock it. Y- From the first to the last of it Delivery is passionate You're holding out the half of it Forecasting after math of it Projectile and I'm blasted away Accurate and stasis shit Me and Kali close like Bethlehem and Nazareth After this, you be pressing rewind on top your master's Shining like an asterisk for all those in your gallery Connecting like a rent house From the house to the tenements Cause all my Brooklyn residents on a heavy regiment evidence we're brooklyn see that rather take it all can't believe that from where they send the tree at, to where the police react tell quality equality we tell them what we where they paint murals of biggie And
5: Cash we trust Cause it's get a fabulous life Look pretty, what, what a pity Blunts are still 50 cents It's intense Street sense is dominant Can't be covered with incense My presence felt My name is quality From the eternal reflection People think it MC is your hand for misconception Let me meditate Set it straight Came to the conclusion That most of these cats Is featherweight Let me demonstrate Walking the streets is like battling Be careful with your body You must know karate if you think maybe your soul like is bulletproof Like Jade. Stop acting like a bitch already Be a visionary And maybe you can see your name In the collar some of great teacher reading and talking about, I knew he'd amount to nothing neighbors like he was the quiet type, the thought they was frontin', talk loud like you and RCA, get carded away with body parts and trays, what a way to start your day, yo it's like, one, two, three, most of the time it was, we came to rock
10: it on to the tip top, best alliance in hip hop.
0: That was Definition by Black Star. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM, and this is the Independent News Hour with our special uh, election edition. Actually, three hours tonight. We started at 5 o'clock, and we're going all the way to 8 o'clock. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. We've uh, had a bunch of uh, great guests uh, with us so far, and we've got more in store. We've also got our reporters out in the field. We've been hearing from uh, voters at various uh, polling stations, and we're going to hopefully hear from more voters uh, at the top of the hour. And uh, but it, for our next guest, we're going to talk with uh, indie reporter Ted Ham. Uh, Ted also in the past was an editor at Brooklyn Rail and is a journalist who's really uh, like Tom Robbins before us. Uh, follows the machinations of local politics uh, very closely and has written a number of uh, great pieces for the indie in uh, recent months and years. Ted, welcome to WBAI. Hey John. Hey Ted. To great to here. have you with us and now uh one one race well actually before we talk about particular races uh, one piece you had for the independent in the past week was about how the one percent is uh playing dirty in the elections uh here you know imagine that the rich people throwing their money around but can you tell us give us a little bit of an overview on uh, what's going on with the one percent and that money they're tossing around and who they're targeting
6: Sure. So there's a pack called uh, Common Sense, which is not to be confused with Thomas Paine's version of Common Sense. Uh, and, we, and what they are uh, promoting is the agenda of the real estate um, industry. Some people call it a community. I prefer to call it industry. Um, and they. Um, are targeting candidates, particularly DSA candidates, but also left-leaning candidates um, elsewhere or promoting their uh, candidates they deem to be most friendly uh, to their agenda. So the main target uh, just uh, in the last day or so has now surpassed $100,000 that they've spent against Michael Hollingsworth in uh, the district Fort Greene through Crown Heights that uh, lori Cumbo's seat it's a hotly contested race that we've covered extensively in the indy the, um and they've been sneering him socialist uh which in their ads and their mailers and so on just using the word socialism is just supposed to set off alarm bells I mean, they, wait a minute
0: i thought this sounds kind of enticing to me
6: yeah <laughs> yeah i think they missed the poll in Uh, by the Manhattan Institute, the far-right organization that showed 79% support for socialism among city voters. Uh, So (laughs) that may be backfiring. Um, But then also uh, they've been trying to play up the crime uh, spike, attribute it to activists, uh, Black Lives Matter activists, uh, so on. And Hollingsworth is calling for defund, although uh, so is his real estate-backed um, opponent, main opponent, Crystal Hudson. Uh, so, um, you know, that's obviously not an issue that they're concerned, that they're, they're, they're concerned about in the sense that crime does um, imperil gentrification or from uh, uh, coming to the city and so on. Uh, but, you know, they're really worried about their own vested interests. So um, Steve Ross, the main funder of Common Sense, is the Hudson Yards developer, who's got a lot of interest in what happens with the City Council moving forward, uh, the Hudson Yards has been a, a major expenditure with over six billion dollars in public subsidies, uh, and so on. So he's not really opposed to certain kinds of stuff. Um, but <laughs> in any case, he's trying to. They've been trying to take out uh, Hollingsworth. They've been trying to take out Alexa Aviles in Sunset Park. That seems unlikely. Right. Right.
0: You've written about uh, Alexa in District 38 there in in South. Yeah.
6: Yeah. So they're, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, Some of their candidates are no, are are likely to win. Um, So I guess they they are are promoting some candidates and opposing others. So we'll see the scorecard again coming out of tomorrow or coming out tonight's results. But, uh, Jaslyn Kerr out in uh, eastern Queens, um, they are opposing her. That's I think they're now almost equal to the expenditures on Hollingsworth. So uh, she's a DSA-backed candidate out there. So they, you know, they are clearly trying to uh, snuff out the the momentum that the DSA has gained.
0: Right. Well, I'm sure that would be unnerving for them if, uh, Je- uh, Carr, won out in Eastern Queens. I mean, that's not known right. as a, a hotbed of socialism, unlike some of these neighborhoods, Astoria, uh, central Brooklyn, Sunset Park, where the socialist candidates have really flourished in the last couple of cycles. So, right. yeah. so in, in some ways, while well, that, their ability to throw all that money around it is, um, uh, you know, is infuriating, on the other hand, it, 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 it does suggest uh, some fear on their part that uh, that their sort of comfortable arrangement with uh, machine Democrats is really uh, being put to the test.
6: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, and I think it is. I mean, I think that's, I've seen, there's been a lot of sort of um, you know, high minded uh, commentary or headlines and so on about whether uh, the left will suffer a major setback if uh, Adams wins or England, even Garcia. Um, but you know the city council is clearly uh, trending left um, and so the DSA has six candidates the working families party has 30 candidates um, they're bad. so um, likely there will be a, a good number of uh, left can left wing candidates on the city council um, so you might you'll get a mix of uh, this being a a good year for the left uh in terms of the lower ballot races but then at the top uh, not necessarily and i think right. it's, as you heard with what what tom robbins was saying about maya wiley you know she's that's the standard bearer of the left right now that she's not the most um horse. she's not she's not really i mean she's always been associated with the blasio anyway that's a, in fact problem with her campaign was trying to figure out how to claim she wasn't associated with de blasio when she was and that's (laughs) we come back to uh, the uh, the recurring um recurring storylines about the the, the negative things that she was involved with under de blasio when she could have been taking credit for the positive things or or at least associating herself with the positive she had uh members of de blasio's first term this team that were responsible for UPK uh, were some of their biggest supporters and so on. So, she, you know, there were different ways she could have gone. But um, Monday morning, Wednesday morning quarterbacking, I
0: guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Markle>. <laughs> and, and, and speaking of uh, rich people throwing their money around, another race that you followed really closely and wrote about again uh, today for The Independent uh, is the Manhattan District Attorney Race. There's eight candidates on the ballot. Uh, by far, the wealthiest is uh, uh, Tali Farhadian uh, Weinstein. Uh, her husband's a, a hedge fund manager on Wall Street. Uh, the family wealth is thought to be upwards of a half billion dollars, and uh, she recently we recently learned uh, that she had uh, self-funded uh, eight million dollars to herself in the uh, last month to uh, add to the millions of dollars in. Uh, money she'd already received from uh, wealthy uh, Wall Street uh, tycoons. Can you talk about what she's up to? I mean, with this incredible amount of uh, money she's spending, and and also how she is spending it. What is she spending it on?
6: Sure. Well, uh, just one thing that we um, reported a few months ago. Uh, one of the other campaigns, to Hani Abushi's campaign, supported by the Working Families Party. Um, uh, they used uh, referred to her as a billionaire. Um, and that was not challenged by uh, Weinstein's campaign. So they may be not, not, to get in this dumb conversation about, well, oh, who's a real billionaire. And who's not a billionaire. So Trump, uh, <laughs> but she may be a billionaire. Oh yeah. Quite, I, I stopped quite counting
0: well after I made my first half billion.
6: Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, so she's dumped at least eight point two million down the stretch uh, into her self financing after telling people she wouldn't self finance because she was already raising over four upwards of four and a half million from the one percent from Wall Street types, um, charter school funders, uh, real estate developers that that crowd, uh, and then she decided, and, and it may you know we'll see what happens. That this may have been a major blunder on her part if she does not win, uh, because it did generate this uh, flurry of negative stories about her over the last ten days of the campaign, trying to buy the election. Quite blatant, uh, she was doing so, and then then she. um, Can you you talk a little bit about
0: what she was spent, what she's been spending that money on? Because that's also created some controversy.
6: Right. So, yeah, the smear campaign ads, uh, mailers, and so on, um, attacking Alvin Bragg, uh, who's seen to be uh, a leading contender. Um, and, and he's uh, a Black um, former de- uh, deputy attorney general from Harlem uh, who has the support of the Central Park Five or the exonerated Five, as he calls them. And yet now uh, Weinstein has been sneering him, saying he's um, unfair to rape victims, um, and uh, that's the the, the only way that they're stretching that, trying to establish that is that he, um, because of his call for the Central Park Five prosecutor Linda Fairstein to have her uh, convictions. Reviewed or other convictions. Reviewed that that somehow would put rape victims into, um, re, you know, re- revive the uh, horror that they experienced.
0: Right. Uh, just to just to clarify that for our listeners, if, if there's any who aren't familiar with the history of the Central Park Five, uh, Linda Fairstein, w- working in conjunction with the NYPD, went to outrageous lengths to to frame these five uh, teenagers who became known as the Central Park Five who spent over a decade in prison uh, on a, a rape conviction that was completely manufactured um, from uh, uh, false confessions that were extracted from these boys when they were 14, 15 years old. Um, and, and of course, the, the the real perpetrator of the of the brutal rape that occurred in, in Central Park in uh, 1989 uh, Went we managed to stay free for another decade uh, before he was finally caught after committing more crimes. So, uh, Fairstein's role in all that is uh, atrocious. And and so, for uh, for Hadian to somehow uh, try to uh, uh question uh, uh, or for 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 Hadian to uh, hold up uh, uh Fairstein as uh, some sort of um, uh, prosecutor who whose uh, whose work uh, should be defended uh. Uh, it, it's really incredible. It, it is either a desperation there or a, a certain brazenness.
6: Yeah. I mean, uh, she was also making wrongful convictions at the outset of her campaign. As a the story I wrote today, that was going to be one of her most important issues uh, when she started out. And she was laying claim to work that had been done at the Brooklyn DA's office when she was there for two years as the general counsel to the They set up a post-conviction justice bureau, which they had already established a conviction review unit. And under uh, Ken Thompson, they had exonerated two dozen or so um, wrongful convictions. So uh, then um, that slowed down under Gonzalez. But even so, uh, uh, Farhiti and was she was laying claims to that being a major innovation and so on um but then she was also there when uh, the case that we've covered extensively the john juca case uh she was general counsel when the team uh executive team at the office was trying to figure out how to continue to move forward in that case uh even though there's uh, a long list of evidence they withheld and misconduct and so on uh by the prosecutor andigu galazi so uh you know she's how much she's played a role in trying to um, uh, uh, resist or, or expose prosecutorial misconduct is, is certainly an open question, but that probably is a little more um, in, deep, in depth than most voters are going to go at this point. So what they're seeing now is uh, you know this flurry of ads, uh, mailers, relentless amount of mailers. People live in Manhattan. And people say they've seen you on Facebook all the time, um, popping up and so on, and. Uh, feels like she's been camping out in my
0: have. facebook feed for the last couple of months yeah and, and I'm sure I'm not alone
6: right i mean i don't I'm in mean, brooklyn I don't use facebook that much so uh, i I didn't see it but um
0: it's an <laughs> occupational plenty of hazard
6: people, plenty of people for that yeah
0: right and, and i mean beyond uh, you know for Hadi and uh, weinstein's uh, you know shenanigans here what would it mean if um you know, if, if uh, Alvin Bragg won, what, how much uh, change could we see at the um, DA's office? And obviously there's other candidates in the race, but the latest polls that came out just in the last few days uh, really showed it to be a two-candidate race at this point with uh, uh, Bragg running equal to or even slightly ahead of uh, Farhadian and all the other candidates uh, still in single digits. So before we have to leave here, real quickly, what what's possibly at stake in terms of how uh, – the Manhattan DA's office could finally be changed for the better.
6: Well, a uh, uh, conviction review for sure. I mean, the Vance has had a conviction review unit and it's been dormant. And then, obviously, um, changing its uh, position regarding low-level prosecutions, misdemeanor prosecutions, non-prosecutions of sex work. That you know, so you have the decarceral candidates, Eliza Orleans, Dan um and Abushi, who I mentioned before. Uh, you know they are more to the left. So Bragg is there as the sort of progressive in the middle. He's um, comparable to Gonzalez, I would say, um, maybe a little more to the left, and maybe a little... certainly um, knows what's going on. It's just he's temperamentally moderate. So uh, you know that we'll see what we will see what happens. But I think those. Fact that the, the problem we've seen and we've written about in India is that those three decarceral candidates could hurt Grant, chances. hopefully that um, won't happen, but uh, we'll find out soon enough. There's no ranked choice voting, so in this race we're going to find out sooner than others. We don't have to wait for the um, about the rank choice run, um, counting.
0: Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but. Uh... Uh, Ted Hamm, indie reporter, uh, has been covering a lot of the races uh, for us this cycle. Thank you so much for joining us on our uh, election night special edition. Uh,
6: it was pleasure. To talk to you soon.
0: Okay. Thank you, Ted. Hey. And again, uh, that Manhattan DA's race, if you're living in Manhattan, you still have two more hours. If you haven't voted in, in that race, a crucial race, the polls are open till 9 p.m. And it, of all the races, it's the one race today that is not a ranked choice voting race, the DA's uh, race is uh, under the administration of the state, and the state of New York still does not have ranked choice voting, only the city. So that race is you get one vote, and if you're a Manhattan resident, you still have two more hours to participate in that race and, and to cast your ballot. And um, I believe uh, joining us uh, now, we, I think we have uh, uh, Chi uh, Anunwa, uh, co-chair of New York City Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, Chi, are you there? He's in the process. Okay. All right. So, uh, hi, uh, hi, Achi. Uh, is that is yes. that you? Yes. Great. Hi. hi. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on WBEI for the Independence uh, Special uh, Election uh, uh, Night broadcast. So, uh, DSA, uh, you got six uh, Democratic Socialists running uh, in, uh, from uh, Brooklyn to the Bronx and all the way out to Eastern Queens. Uh, how are and this is these are races that are being closely watched as a barometer of whether democratic socialism is still gaining strength uh, here in New York City. Uh, what's your sense of how the races are going uh, as with uh, two hours still left uh, until the polls close?
15: Yeah, so I mean, I think that our ground game is like still going strong for all these races. I'm actually out here now doing um a get out the vote shift for Alexa Viles, who is our candidate in Sunset Park Brooklyn. And yeah, we have a lot, we've had a lot of volunteers out in the streets and hitting the phones in the last, well, in the last months, but like, especially um, during Get Out the Boat. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, our volunteers are really kind of all out, putting it online. Um, there's a lot of energy around these six candidates. I think people are really excited about these candidates' platforms and what they stand for, and that they're really backed by a people-driven grassroots movement.
0: Yeah, I I saw a tweet uh, this morning from Brandon West, who's the DSA candidate in uh, District 39 in uh, Park Slope and uh, adjacent neighborhoods. And he mentioned that uh, volunteers for his campaign had knocked on 14,000 doors over the weekend. Uh, That's a staggering number uh, for uh, such a local race. Do you have a sense that similar uh, numbers are being racked up in the other races? Yeah. I don't, have the, I
15: don't have the exact numbers yet, but um, I would not be surprised if they're similar. I mean, we've had really amazing volunteer turnout for these city council races and all of, for all six of the candidates.
0: Great. and, Um, can you talk a little bit about, oh, actually, we just got to stop real here. Just one sec here. It's uh, the top of the hour, seven o'clock. And, uh, just want to give a station ID, uh, for all our listeners. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM on the radio dial. And, uh, we're entering the final hour of the independence, uh, three hour election special edition. And, uh, we're talking with, uh, Chia Nunwa, co chair of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America, the largest, the single largest chapter of the DSA in the in the country, and they've had some real breakthroughs in the last uh, several election cycles. Helped to elect Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to Congress, and last year, um, in the last couple of years, have elected six people, six socialists to the state legislature. And now they're today they're trying to elect six more socialists to the city council. Uh, uh, Chi, can you talk a little bit about? the How the DSA impro- approaches endorsements because a lot of groups in this city, a lot of unions, a lot of civic groups, all kind of groups uh, make endorsements, but often those are a little more than sort of uh, letterhead endorsements that don't carry a, a big punch behind them. But when you all endorse, it's serious. And, and can you talk about what y'all bring to the table when you endorse a candidate and and what the strategy is here behind that?
15: Yeah, I mean, I think you said a lot of it, um, but yeah, when we endorse a candidate. It's not just a rubber stamp endorsement. Um, When we endorse a candidate, we are committing to a fully fledged um, volunteer operation. Um, And so, yeah, we're committing a lot of hours from our volunteers, from our members. And so, I'm sorry, there might be, I don't know if the siren is.
0: Yeah, we can hear it a little bit.
15: Okay. Maybe just give that.
0: Yeah, we'll let that uh, – hold on just one second, Chia. We'll let that uh, siren pass so that you, you can uh, continue. But, yeah, we're talking with Chia Nunwa, co-chair of New York City Democratic Socialists of America. She's uh, on the street in uh, South Brooklyn um, with a couple more hours uh, to go in, in the election today for that city council seat out there in District 38 where Democratic Socialist Alexa Aviles is running. And uh, thankfully that siren uh, is almost entirely passed by. So, Chi, uh, going back to what you were saying uh, before we were uh, so rudely interrupted there uh, <laughs> about the uh, the strategy uh, that you all bring bring to these uh, races.
15: Yeah, so our endorsements, you know, they're not rubber stamp endorsements. They come with a commitment of a big volunteer operation. We're asking our members, when we endorse a candidate, we're asking our members to commit a lot of time and energy, a lot of unpaid time and energy to these candidates. And so it's really important that every candidate that we endorse has the buy-in of our members as a whole. And that's why we have a pretty lengthy and democratic process by which we choose who we endorse. Um, because it is like a very um, involved endorse, like what comes with an endorsement is very involved. And um, it's not just kind of a light touch rubber stamp situation and Absolutely. in terms of and I think you were asking about the strategy I mean I think in terms of the strategy you know we try to pick candidates that you know are rooted in working class communities um, ideally you know maybe have some kind of organizing experience around some of like issues that are really important to our members like housing healthcare, care um, education Climate change and so on. And so, you know, all six of the DSA for the city slate, for example, you know, these are all people who, you know, have been very rooted in their districts and their neighborhoods for a long time. Um, You know, these include people who are longtime tenant organizers, longtime, you know, parent education leaders. Um, leaders in criminal justice reform, and so on and so forth.
0: Right. We, we've we got a reporter up in uh, District 14 in the Bronx uh, where um, uh, Adolfo Abreu is uh, running for city council as a Democratic Socialist. Uh, um, he, Roman uh, Broskowski is going to join us in a moment. Uh, but uh, last question. uh if a block of uh, Democratic Socialists uh, win tonight, whether that's all six or many of those six, what do you all hope to accomplish on city council next year? What would what would this all mean?
15: Yeah, so, you know, I think what it will mean is, like, we would have a block of people that, you know, I think would work to really um, serve as a point of let- politically leftward pressure on the city council and the mayor as a whole. You know, our hope is that, like, socialist bloc would also work with you know other progressives that are elected to really push the city council in a more leftward direction especially you know which will be especially important depending on who is elected mayor um if we end up electing a more moderate or right wing mayor it'll be really important to have um you know a strong you know leftist presence in the city council to moderate that to moderate the more moderate influences in City Hall.
0: Okay, well, Chia Nunwood, thank you for joining us on WBAI Radio to share your perspective uh, on these uh, races that people are going to be following very closely in the coming days.
15: Yeah, and thanks for having me. You bet. Oh, and All also, right. um, if you haven't voted, do so. You have it till 9 p.m. New York. Let's get it. Let's go.
0: Okay, well, we know you'll be out there uh, working hard for every vote you can find. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you so much for joining us, G. Okay, bye. All right, okay. So we have our uh, reporters in the in the field that have, uh, and uh, I think first of all we're going to try to go to uh, uh, Roman uh, Broskowski, uh, who's uh, up in the northwest Bronx. Uh, Roman, are you there?
2: Yeah. Hey, John, I'm here. I'm standing outside of Lucero Elementary School on Walton Ave in the Bronx, uh, uh, City Council District 14. I'm standing right next to a garbage can filled with campaign literature. Um, and uh, the vibe here is one of confusion. People confusion? Are What's going unsu- on? People are unsure of how to think about the new ranked choice voting system. The, I've talked to a number of people so far, and they've said that, uh, you know, they feel a lot of pressure to give all the candidates their due. Um, but that they don't know how to go past the, the first vote. Uh, I spoke with one woman who said that she went with Eric Adams just because she's known him the longest. Um And uh, a lot of other people have said that they've made up their mind on who they're voting for, for all races uh, this morning. Mm. So, uh you know, a lot of uh, mixed bag here.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, did anybody indicate how they voted in the city council race up there? Very hotly contested race, especially between the socialist uh, Adolfo Abreu and the, um... Uh, Pirina Sanchez is backed by a lot of establishment forces.
2: Yeah, no, people have not been uh really uh, uh, wanting to talk about that specific race. I okay. uh, talked to a couple of people who said that they hadn't even really thought about it uh, and hadn't heard of uh, any of the candidates one way or the other. Although uh canvassers on either corner of this block are from the, multi- the six different uh, city council campaigns are, are here out in force. Um, and. Hopefully, trying to uh, sway voters in the last two hours of election day. Um, I can try and try to get grab someone and see if they're willing to, to talk. If that's yeah. a it works.
0: Yeah, maybe we'll try to come back to you at the half hour. We'll get we're we're talking uh, with our field reporters at the top and the middle of the hour. Um, but yeah, if you're able to round somebody up, we can talk to you up there around seven thirty. That would be great. Um, before we go to our next segment, we also have Amber Gagarin uh, in the field. Um, Amba, do you, you have a voter there with you over in uh, Clinton Hill?
3: I'm here with Julia.
12: Oh, yeah. Hi, John. Yes. Uh, we're out here in Clinton Hill, District 35. And I'm here with Melvin, who, uh, just voted. And, um, you know, Melvin, uh, could you tell us about, um, uh, yeah, state, you know, how, how long have you lived here in the neighborhood in New York and how, how old
4: are you? I'm 64. I lived in, Crown Heights area for the 6 years now from um Bed-Stuy area in East New York. Um I graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School and I've been voting every, day, every every year since I moved into the neighborhood at this place right here.
12: Great. And could you tell us who you voted for or who you uh who you ranked in your vote for for mayor?
4: Well, I I ranked um John Adam well, I think it's uh, John Adams. Yeah. Eric, Eric, Eric Adams is my number one um, choice.
12: Okay, and, um, and what and what made you decide to to vote for for Eric Adams?
4: Well, you know, like I say, he was he was a former cop, and now he's um trying to make a difference. So, mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping to see a difference because Mayor Mayor De Blasio is um he's something else. <laughs>
3: yeah. How are you hoping to see a difference in which way?
4: Well. Community wise, people coming together as, as one, you know, blacks and whites living together as one, nobody fighting over nothing, you know, cause everybody's the same, you know, we all the same. We just, you know, male, female, it don't matter. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do good myself, so.
12: Yeah and you said that you voted for Eric Adams in part because he was the candidate who you saw the most on TV and just thinking about sort of how that shaped, you know your decision to vote for him and I mean what what why do you think it's important to vote what 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 impact do you think politicians can have in people's lives
4: well, if you if you don't vote you don't you don't have a choice whoever gets into office you're stuck with it you're stuck with him or her oh or, you know but um if you vote you have a better you have a better say cuz voting you have a you have a voice but if you if you don't vote if you don't vote you don't get you don't get to say anything all so right wh- Whoever's, whoever gets into office you're stuck with that person
0: right you know? Melvin, uh, we, we thank you for coming on WBAI uh, to share your thoughts on the election and, and to Julia and Amba for your the work you all are doing out there in the field. Uh, we're going to move on to our, our next segment. And at, as we do, I'm happy to say we um, uh, our, we have another co-host in with us for the rest of the show, Olivia Reggio. She's uh, helped co-host a, a number of shows in the past year. Olivia, welcome uh, welcome to the air on WBAI.
16: Hi, thanks. It's great to be with you and everyone listening here on 99.5 FM and WBAI.org.
0: Right. And um uh, we you know, a key factor in this race is uh media coverage and uh our our next guest, uh Julie Haller wrote a really outstanding piece uh, yesterday uh, about the uh, impact of uh of the especially the tabloids on the race and the constant drumbeat around crime um, so uh, Julie are, are you there can you uh, are you ready to join us
17: I'm here I'm ready
0: okay uh, so uh, do you want to summarize a, a little bit more what you wrote yesterday in your piece uh, for uh, fair where uh, you were uh, I believe an editor there
17: yeah so it it just struck me in uh, some of the coverage that I saw about the race that crime and public safety was the number one issue for most voters in recent polls. Um, And that was curious to me, since crime is, um, by some measures, at record lows. Um, Housing is also uh, an issue in the top five for people. Um, And as we know, you know, we've had eviction moratoriums, we've had rental assistance, and people are still struggling. Um, So it was just, it was sort of surprising to me that you would see crime being um, higher, being the most important issue for a lot of people uh, in this mayoral race. So I thought I'd take a look at the media coverage of the popular tabloids in the city and see what was going on there. Um, and well, turns out that you are about nine, uh, nine times more likely to hear about crime in the Daily News or in the New York Post than you are to hear about affordable housing or rent control or eviction or supportive housing any of these issues relating to the housing crisis um and you know i'm sure all of all of bai's listeners are very familiar with the sensationalistic covers of of these tabloids um but we actually had one of our interns go back and look at every single cover from from both papers for the last year um and he he did survive fortunately he came back the next day I, I uh i think but um but he he found he pulled up some pretty great ones um great in terms of sensationalistic so we found just um let's see 85 covers of the daily news and 57 at the post that had just you know these sort of crazy kind of tabloid crime covers that you're used to seeing all the time um and this is this kind of this constant drumbeat of crime coverage of Headlines like "carnage and chaos" um, on on the cover of of the tabloids that you know you see when you walk past the bodega every day. You see these. You don't have to subscribe. You don't have to. It may not be the the outlet that you read most, but these really, I think, seep into a public consciousness in this city. And um, the reporting is just remarkable. Um, and you know, w- when I said that crime is overall down, shootings and murders are up a little bit, or you know, up somewhat significantly in the past couple of years. Um, when you don't put it into context, if you put it into context, uh, you know, we're at, we're at the same number of murders as we were, uh, basically in 2012, uh, which was like a banner year for us. And Bloomberg, who was mayor at the time, was touting New York City as the safest big city in America because of our, our low violent crime rate. Um, other crimes are actually down sharply. Um, so if you look at the overall, New York, the NYPD tracks seven major crimes and puts them into this grand total and those, those total numbers of crimes are, are way down um, over, over the short term and long term. So you know this perception that crime is out of control and that public safety is our top priority for a mayor I think is, um, is, some, is, a, is a myth that's being fed by, by the media, by the local media.
8: Well,
16: they say if it bleeds, it reads, right? <laughs> um But so what can we actually, we're, we're talking, there is a slight rise in violent crime. And when people hear that, they automatically get nervous. What can we attribute this rise in violent crimes to? And I think it's worth saying that it's not just these tabloids that are saying things like this. I mean we see it in the New York Times. we see it in um the Washington post um and a lot of times this uh rise in crimes is used to justify people advocating for more policing um but what can we actually attribute this rise to
17: yeah th- and thanks i d- I didn't mean to let the Times or the Washington Post off the hook <laughs> by. <a minute. laughs> Um, I mean, this is kind of nationwide coverage because this is happening all over the country, right? There has been an increase nationwide in some of these gun crimes. And we shouldn't be surprised at all because there has also been a very sharp increase in gun sales in the past year. Um, when the pandemic hit, there was a real spike in gun sales, and that's continued. Um, and, you know, this is this is not rocket science, um, This is there's a there's a long standing correlation between uh, between gun sales and uh, and violent crime. So um, that obviously is something that should be looked at if you're looking at an increase only in your in your murders and your and your shooting incidents and you're looking at a a big decrease in your other kinds of crimes. Well, then this is clearly about guns. Right. you know you you also have to think about what's been going on for everyone for the past year and there's been so much stress um and and trauma and there've been um you know people people's communities have been torn apart um and a lot of the institutions that they rely on um have you know not been there and people are struggling so you know it's it's just it's it's a shame you know if we could if we if we if we had media that tell it like it is that is more accessible to people obviously everyone listening to WBAI is already seeking out that kind of media but you know the 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 sort of general majority um is getting fed these myths about crime and and uh you know not really the, the, the corporate media aren't really digging into the deeper causes of what's going on here which would really help inform um the debates around who the next mayor ought to be and what kind of expertise they should have and what kind of solutions they should be advocating for this city.
16: And I know in your piece you mentioned, um, or there was a picture as well, of uh, one of the New York Post's covers when they introduced Adams. Can you describe this for, or I'm sorry, when they endorsed Adams, um, but can you describe <laughs> it for our listeners and you know what the headline was below it?
17: Yeah, they actually endorsed him. I, I can't remember if it was two or three times, <laughs> just in case you missed it the first time. Um, but I think this was their first endorsement where um, the, the they had a split front cover and the top was Eric Adams for mayor. And then the bottom was, I don't want to die. Mom, shot in Times Square. No one would even help me. Um, so it's, you know, this, this is obviously very intentional, right? The, Adams is the fighting crime kind of uh, candidate for mayor. And so you obviously put um, your crime story about this poor, this poor mother being shot in this iconic New York city location um, <laughs> with, with your, with your endorsement for him.
0: Yeah. They were probably saving that endorsement until the day they could uh, have a really uh, lurid uh, uh, incident happen.
17: Right. Wait for the juiciest one they could find.
0: It feels like it. Uh, another thing you, you brought out in your piece, I mean, you do a great job of um, juxtaposing the the intense saturation coverage of, of crime, and and then how little coverage goes to the struggles of tenants and uh, the struggle to for affordable housing, if people can even find it. And uh, can you talk a little bit also about these um, media outlets and their relationship to the real estate industry, which uh, butters a lot of their bread?
17: yeah I mean by this is New York City in general, right? The real estate industry seems to seems to be um, it has its fingers everywhere. Um, and you know you think about you think about newspapers and what kind of sections they have in the newspaper, right? Um, you know you've got a business section, you don't have a you don't have a labor section. <laughs> um, you've got a real estate section. The real estate section has lots of ads. Um you know the real estate ads they have you know they 're trying to get you especially you know all these these luxury buildings that are going up with all these fancy uh fancy apartments that most readers can 't even afford um they have I, I noticed in the daily news they have all these articles in the real estate section about these like multi million dollar homes um, you know again the vast majority of New Yorkers are not anywhere in the market for this, but they 're these kind of um they're, they're kind of selling you this dream, right? This, there's this dream of, of this beautiful world where we can all afford this multi-million dollar house, um, and then you don't want to have all of these all of these articles about tenant struggles and homelessness and the and NYCHA's problems and all of this stuff about, you know, the, what what most of us in New York City are facing as. Tenants, or as um, you know residents in public housing or or those who are are not currently housed in a stable situation, um, you know a large number of New Yorkers are severely rent burdened again, this is not a surprise to any of us, right but um, it 's unusual for this country like new york New York City obviously is one of the most ex- expensive places to live um, and one of the one of the numbers that i that I pulled out here, um, not in the article, actually, but after I wrote it, I thought of an even better way to frame it, is that you are more than 800 times more likely to be severely rent burdened in New York City than to be shot in New York City. Um, This is an issue that impacts a huge number of New Yorkers very directly. Um, And it's something that just doesn't really get covered because it's not it's not so comfortable for the newspapers to cover it. They don't want to be putting these kinds of articles next to all of these real estate ads. Um, And frankly, you know, you're talking about Rupert Murdoch owned posts, the the Tribune company owns, well, they're kind of in the midst of a sale, I I believe, but the the Daily News, Um, these corporate owned papers are not interested really in challenging the corporate status quo. So, so it's, you know, it's really unsurprising that we get this sort of skewed coverage, but it's, uh, it's also really unfortunate. And it's important for, for readers to be able to read these newspapers really critically.
0: Yeah, I, I would say it would be great if, uh, uh, our fellow journalists would read these papers critically when I think back to some of the mayoral debates where, I mean, like the whole first hour of the date debates would be consumed by discussions about crime. You'd never guess there are any other problems in the city like housing. Um, and, uh, they still seem to have the ability to set, kind of set an agenda, even though our, our earlier guest, uh, Tom Robbins n- uh, noted that the tabloids, uh, strength has waned over the, Years as their circulation has declined, but they still seem to have an agenda-setting ability, at least at certain moments.
17: Yeah, absolutely. But also, I mean, thinking about the local television, um, you know, crime stories are super popular on on local TV news. Um, and and again, we don't want to we don't want to let the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and these other papers off the hook too. They don't they don't do the same kind of sensationalistic. Coverage that you expect from the tabloids, but um, but they they still have the same kinds of um, general priorities, Um, you know, not putting the not 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 running as many of these housing stories. And, um, you know, this this real focus on crime going up all over the country.
16: What does um, not just sympathetic, but honestly, just accurate coverage of poverty of homelessness um look like and and how could it actually change the way people the the greater narrative of new york city um we've seen we've seen you know demonization of the homeless seeing it connected directly to crime in the debates and in coverage um as well as mental illness which is tied into that um and you know there's just so many Contributing factors, but you know what does actually responsible reporting on on these issues look like, and um, how can it change the way people think and what people truly fear?
17: Um, I mean, I I think it's a great question, and and the first the first answer I would say is you know talk to more people who are really in it, right? Talk to homeless people talk to um, organizations that advocate for um, for people um, who are who don't have stable housing um, you know the, one of the things that we do so much at fair is source studies um, what we're looking at is who who gets who gets to be an expert um, in the media and um, you know the experts tend to be government officials um, and then secondarily there'll be you know sometimes you know um some think tanks or academics or or things like that but you you overwhelmingly have government officials and government officials are going to you know they're going to give you their own spin on things um and it's not necessarily going to be anything like what advocates would be would be telling you this is something that you see in every kind of issue um But 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 here, you know, there are so many really great organizations in New York City working on housing issues and how often, you know, they they should be their phones should be ringing off the hook with reporters calling them, asking for quotes and asking for expertise and writing, you know, so that they can write articles about this and report articles about this stuff as much as they're reporting about crime. But it's not happening. Um, We need to have beat reporters on on these kinds of issues, um, instead of just getting, you know, they just get these feeds from the police blotter, you know, you've got, you've got all the crime reports and everything. Well, let's have, Mm. let's have reports from the housing advocates, you know,
16: Definitely. Um, and we're going to have to close out this segment, but if you want to read Julie's article for yourself, you can visit fair.org. and I think next, uh, well, first of all, Julie, thank you for joining us tonight. And thank you for your analysis of, um, the coverage that we've been seeing um, regarding crime and homelessness. Um, so up next, uh, John, are we about to go to our field reports?
0: I believe so. We, um, uh, I think we've got Roman and uh, Amba uh, ready to um, report from the field again. I was just, uh, just going to say one quick thing. You know, if you're looking for the kind of reporting that uh, Julie was describing and and, and urging uh, look to uh, read the Independent every month. Our uh, both our print edition and our uh, online coverage. I mean, we try to cover these issues from a, a more of a grassroots people's perspective. Certainly, very different than what you'd see in the tabloids. So we're trying to model uh, some of the, the the journalistic practices that Julie's uh, calling for, and we've been doing that for 20 years. So we're really proud of that. But yeah, it was great hearing from Julie. But now we I think we got people in the field. Uh, uh Roman up in the uh, up in the northwest Bronx. Are you there?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm having a little bit of difficulty trying to get people to speak on, on the radio. The common theme that I'm getting is people feel uneducated about the election. I spoke with one woman and her daughter who said that they didn't even realize the election was today until they woke up this morning and saw it on the news. They're, uh, and again, people seem really uncomfortable with the new voting system. They feel like it's unclear and they're not really sure how it works. Uh, but uh like your previous guest mentioned uh fear of crime is definitely salient in this district and people are responding to that Uh, i spoke with a lot of people who mentioned that eric adams was their number one um and uh i mean that kind of says it all right they've mentioned the the desire for a strong uh police response one man said that he lives on the corner and, and uh wants the street to be quiet and that's why he voted for eric adams
0: Right, and it's often people like that who come out and, and vote in, in strong numbers. Uh, any, anything else you want to add from up there in, in, in the Northwest Bronx uh, before we pivot back to AMBA and Julia in Brooklyn?
2: Um, it seems pretty slow out here. There you have people filtering in and out, but it doesn't seem like there's a, a pretty big rush. Um, and while I know the DSA really rooted for this district as a as a chance to make an impact, um, it seems people aren't paying that much attention to uh, the city council district race, uh, at least on election day. I don't know about early voting.
0: Right. There was nine days of early voting as well. Well, Roman Broskowski, thank you so much uh, for your reporting from up in the Northwest Bronx this evening. Awesome. You- and now we're going to pivot to uh, Amba Gagarin and Julia Thomas again in, uh, I believe in uh, in uh, Clinton Hill. Is that where y'all are still right now?
3: Yeah, we're in Clinton Hill, District 35. Um, and we are here uh, with a voter who just voted and um, is, is happy to go on air. So uh, I'm Amba Gigarin speaking. And what is your name? Uh, I'm Rachel. Okay, Rachel, how old are you, if you don't mind sharing? I'm 31. 31. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how long have you been voting in this district, District 35? Three years. Three years. Yeah. Okay. And uh, if you don't mind going ahead and sharing who you voted for for, for mayor?
18: Yeah, for mayor, I did. Garcia first, okay, and then Wiley second, and then Morales third, okay. and then Art Cheng fourth, third. and then I left the fifth blank. Okay, okay so I, I see a trend
3: uh, yeah. with 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 the women. Was that it? Was that um, a priority of yours, or it just was random?
18: No, I, what I mean, yes, but no. I took a I took like an online quiz and did some research, and then. They Happened to be my top three match in okay. Art chain, too. It, it was great that they were also women, but okay. it wasn't the number one thing I was looking for.
3: So, you took an online cl- quiz. Do you feel uh excited about your choices? Do you feel really like I'm gung ho about Garcia, yeah. or were you just sort of like, oh, that's you know, that's what I matched with?
18: No, no, I really like Garcia, and I, I had before, but I was. Like, uh, I thought I would listen to podcasts last week or, like, watch the debate. But then even after that, I don't know. There's just so many people to choose from. And then being able to choose up to five choices, I was, like, having a hard time keeping everything straight. So it was called, like, the thing I used was actually very comprehensive. So it was sort of my last tool that I used. But after feeling like there was so much information that I needed something kind of simple to simplify it. But I like Catherine Garcia a lot. And why, why,
3: why, why are you excited about voting for her?
18: Um, Well, I like her because I have a background in like urban design and architecture and like city projects really appeal to me. And I feel like she has a great history of doing city projects. Um, I don't know she feels like she's really done things like her work in the sanitation department all of that stuff is exciting to me and like very concrete so
3: okay. I like that about her Some concrete examples and then let's pivot to uh the city council race so you say you voted for Crystal Hudson
18: I did and actually I was sitting in my car trying to figure out who to vote for and I came down on, I decided to vote for her and then I got out of my car and she was standing outside my car so that was <laughs> further I, she's really lovely I just met her a few minutes ago but I had already decided to vote for her so. and why was that why was that um, okay, to be honest, I did a, this one I didn't research as much, did a really quick read, but I just thought she had good experience and worked with other names that I knew and she lives here and I don't know, I liked her ideas. It was a very quick car search, I would say. <laughs> Solidified by meeting her again. So
12: very effective. <laughs> Do you have any questions? Yeah, and I guess, you know, just thinking more broadly about this election as a whole and just like your priorities as a voter, I guess for you, What would you like to see, I mean, particularly a new mayor of New York City, what would you like to see them accomplish? And, you know, I guess what was on your mind as you were like researching all these different candidates?
18: Yeah, I care a lot about like city infrastructure and systems and thinking about New York being great now, but also into the future. So like I care a lot about like, you know, preparing for climate change and um, housing and Uh, like building affordable housing, all of those sort of like city pieces that I think if they're not there can make our future a little rockier and and our present for that matter. Those things matter a lot to me. So, Okay, great. Um,
3: Well, I think that's it for us here.
0: Okay. Well, Amba and Julia, thank you uh, for your work out there. And Rachel, thank you for joining us on WBAI 99.2. Five FM and sharing your your thoughts with all our listeners.
18: Yeah, happy to be here. Okay,
0: and and thank you for going out and voting and participating in the electoral process. And uh, just for our listeners, a reminder that the polls are open until 9 p.m., so you have a a little under an hour and a half to vote if you haven't voted yet. And uh, again, Amba and Julia, thank you for all your great work in the field this evening. All right, so I guess they've uh, signed off. Uh, We're going to take a short music break and then we're going to come back with our uh, final guest, uh, Ben Max, uh, executive editor of uh, Gotham Gazette. We look forward to hearing from him.
16: we are back you're listening to the independence news hour uh our well our three-hour election night special um i'm olivia riggio and i'm here with the indies editor-in-chief john tarleton um so now we're turning to ben max executive editor at the gotham gazette and the co-host of the max and murphy show which also um airs here on WBAI. They discuss New York politics. And Max has been reporting on and analyzing the mayoral race on his show, as well as um, very prominently on his Twitter, where he's been giving followers play-by-plays on poll data and other developments. Um, So welcome to the show.
19: Thanks for having me.
16: So... I'm going to start with something that I saw you tweeting a lot about last night, which was the 11th hour alliance between Garcia and Yang. Um, and we see it as a strategic move um, brought about by the fact that, you know, ranked choice voting allows for these things um, and also aimed at knocking Adams off of the top of voters lists. Um, but I think for progressive voters, it might be backfiring. Um, we saw, you know, Jumani Williams rec- rescind support for Garcia, um, saying he wouldn't include her in his ranked choice votes. So based on what we know of progressive voters in the city, um, where it, was it likely Garcia was previously on their list? And um, could th- is this alliance affecting that?
19: Yeah, I think those are some key points. Um, you know, <laughs> There's such an interesting discussion here in terms of progressive voters and the mayoral race that I think is sometimes even a little more complicated than, um, than has been discussed. You know, there's sort of different gradients on the progressive left. And I think Catherine Garcia, especially buoyed by the New York Times endorsement had sort of been really hitting that sort of, uh, you know, New York Times reading um very often sort of highly educated very often sort of liberal white voter um and and really seem to take off with those voters especially uh, seemingly getting some of the support that might have been going to Scott Stringer previously who was probably you know potentially the favorite for the New York Times editorial board endorsement before um the accusation against him of sexual misconduct from from the past so um you know I think that's where Garcia was sort of uh, really hitting in terms of progressive voters, not really the sort of further left uh, progressives that have been booing a lot of, you know, state legislative candidates, for example, or, you know, Tiffany Caban's uh, Queens district attorney run of 2019, but, you know, sort of the more liberal left. And so I think, um, I don't know that sort of, Appearing with Andrew Yang was is going to cost her a lot of that support, but I wonder if it perhaps, you know, puts a little bit of a roadblock for her among some voters who are disappointed to see her uh, appearing with him, you know, who might have sort of been considering her. Or under Ranked Choice Voting, it might affect exactly where she was going to get ranked by some of these voters who maybe have Maya Wiley first or even are still Stringer supporters or maybe still Diane Morales uh, interested and now Garcia maybe moves around a little. But what, one thing, you know, that I'll add uh, finally on this is that, you know, Garcia was very clear that she was not giving uh, Andrew Yang any type of cross endorsement. She was not telling her supporters to rank him number two or anything like that. She sort of uh, made it clear that it was a bit of a get out the vote, rank choice voting awareness, and also that she wanted to, you know, get reaffirmed as his voter's second choice. Mm mm-hmm
16: now um I guess on the flip side talk about why the more progressive left candidates um, like Wiley stringer
19: and Morales haven't
16: formed a similar alliance
19: mm. well I think there that we may have seen something like that possibly develop if Scott stringer hadn't been facing the allegations of sexual misconduct that So derailed his campaign. I think, you know, Maya Wiley and Diane Morales, uh, either calling for him to, you know, leave the race or basically fully, you know, distancing themselves from him makes it pretty hard for at any point to sort of come back together and coalesce and form some sort of ticket with him. So, that really put him on the outs of course and as it did with uh, many endorsers who rescinded or who didn't wind up endorsing or you know or voters clearly the way the polls have looked for him and then Morales faced her own crisis around uh, staff treatment and pay uh, things that happen around potential campaign staff unionization it seems to be a variety of things that sort of went awry within that campaign so that made it also challenging for even Maya Wiley and Diane Morales to link up. Wiley seems to have really distanced herself from even calling Morales her number two, which she had been doing uh, earlier in the campaign. So those fractures and those crises in the Stringer and Morales campaigns, while they benefited Wiley in some way by helping her pick up endorsers and momentum, they've also created some of the barriers of a sort of unified left front. And I'll also just add, you know, Catherine Garcia, while on most many of her policies, let's say, especially things related to like policing is being sort of lumped in more with more moderate candidates. As I said, she's clearly appealing to a lot of sort of more left liberal voters. And that, you know, seems to be creating something of a barrier for Wiley to, to really take off. Although the trend lines for Wiley in the polls have been very strong over the last few weeks.
0: And Ben, uh, Overall, I mean, the the mayor's race doesn't look so great for progressives or the left, but overall, how, how well might the broad left, socialists, progressives, et cetera, uh, fare across the board in these elections in uh, down-ballot races? uh a comptroller, uh, the city council with over 30 uh, term-limited seats uh, coming open uh, today. W- mm-hmm. What's your take on, on, on how that might go and, and what kind of impact that might have on the future mayor?
19: Yeah, you know, the first thing I've been sort of, saying i guess um in this context cautioning people on the left who are who are concerned about the mayoral races that i really don't think Maya Wiley's out of the running by any means you know if she's the sort of favorite on the left endorsed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the working families party which had ranked her third wound up coming around to her as their as their top choice after dropping Stringer then Morales uh and so on and so on She's, as I said, been increasing in the polling that we have, and sort of peaking at exactly the right time. If it's enough to win, that's very much to be seen. But I, I do think that um, this discussion around Eric Adams, Andrew Yang, and Catherine Garcia as the three most likely winners, I think is is misguided. Um, that that some people are leaving Wiley out of that conversation because I, I definitely think she's got about as much of a shot as anybody but Adams, uh, who seems to be the clear front runner. So. With that caveat um, and the potential for a, a wily, uh, semi-surprise win, um, you know, the one of the biggest contests, you know, one of the biggest uh, proving grounds here for the left is definitely the controller race, where Brad Lander is the sort of unqualified um, choice of the left, and I don't mean unqualified for the job, although there's been questions raised about that. I mean unlike the Wiley situation, or even when many on the left were backing Scott Stringer before pulling away, there was always a lot of hesitancy there. And with Brad Lander, it's been, you know, just a really sort of enthusiastic, full throated support from leftist groups and elected officials and and such. So he is the left candidate in the controller race. He seems to be the second most likely to win coming into the voting period um, behind Corey Johnson, the city council speaker who, you know, has ridden pretty high name recognition and, uh, and union support uh, for his run for controller after he uh, left the mayoral race a while back. And so, um, you know, there's been some encouraging poll numbers for Lander as he got the New York Times editorial board endorsement. He's got advertisements up with, uh, AOC leading the way as a supporter of his for a while now those have been on air and he seems to have gotten some some momentum with a lot of voters undecided in the polls. so that's a big one I think Lander is probably still considered an underdog as voting uh, concludes but definitely in the mix in some way and that would be a pretty big win for the left if he was able to pull that out in the city council, um, well, I should also note, you know, Jemani Williams is all but certain to uh, be reelected public advocate and win the the Democratic nomination, which is just as good as you know winning the general election in in the seat of public advocate, unless some sort of scandal happens. And so he will be a citywide elected official almost certainly uh, continuing on. And then down to the city council, we can we can skip over the borough presidencies, I guess, unless you want to get into those, but. I think there's a lot of encouraging signs for the left in the city council races. There's a democratic socialist of America, New York city branch slate of six candidates. I would probably say somewhere between three and six of those candidates will are likely to win. Um, a couple of those races are pretty tough for the DSA, but they, they, they are trying, uh, and we'll see, I wouldn't be shocked if they pulled it out because of their organizing and then you know, you have a whole bunch of other leftist groups from the Working Families Party through a number of others that have anywhere between, you know, a dozen and 30 candidates that they're trying to get elected. So I do think there's a lot of opportunity for progressives to to pick up seats in the council and move that body a bit further to the left. I think that's very likely.
0: And Ben, uh, speaking of the Democratic Socialist America here in New York, with their chapter with 7,000 members and their ability to uh, run a uh, tremendous ground game. Uh, how has that, in, in, in your estimation, uh, impacted or jarred the Democratic Party establishment here in the city? I mean, you had these machine candidates up until a few years ago that uh, used to be able to run uh, for reelection pretty much uncontested. And now they have these newcomers uh, often showing up uh, with legions of volunteers and the ability to raise small dollar donations from across the city and even out well outside of New York. How how has this shaken up the establishment? Do you have a sense of that?
19: Definitely a a big a big shakeup. Uh, you've seen uh, a number of of top Democrats really seem to take notice of the the rising power of the DSA. There's clearly fractures within the Democratic Party, and these were were growing previously, um, even before the the New York City DSA seemed to really take a big jump with with some of the state legislative candidates they've elected recently. Um, you know, this was heading in this direction, of course, with the more progressive versus moderate split that's been, you know, uh, happening within the party. But the fact that the DSA has shown themselves to be so effective at winning some of these local races and, and races and, and building power towards being able to, you know, potentially pull off a borough-wide win or or build up towards, you know, more city-wide organizing power has definitely gotten a lot of attention. It's moved it's moved a number of uh, officials and candidates to the left. Uh, you've seen also some retrenchment. You've seen, you know, figures from as high as Governor Andrew Cuomo to Representative Hakeem Jeffries and others that um, you know have really taken note and, in some ways, understood that it's it's something of a war between the the moderate wing and the and the further left wing. So. There's a lot of shakeup happening. There's a lot of, of concern among, uh, the more machine or traditional or moderate, uh, whichever, whichever category you want to put them in, uh, Democrats, absolutely.
16: Mm-hmm. And before you mentioned that you anticipated at least half of the DSA six, um, can- council member, council member candidates, um, faring well. Um, so we heard from a very, you know, diverse cross-section of voters tonight, thanks to our awesome field reporters. Um, but how do we anticipate, not only how do we anticipate these ca- candidates faring, but why? Like, why do you say um, at least half? And how could that be a barometer for um, how open New Yorkers are to these very left ideas?
19: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting in some ways, you um... In some ways, the, the DSA slate, let's say for the city council, is they're not necessarily saying things that are so different than many of the other sort of progressive left candidates running in a lot of other districts, right? This is, these are just candidates who uh, identify as socialists, uh, you know, have really aligned themselves with the, the DSA platform. And that, uh, the, you know, the different branches and localities within the DSA have decided are the candidates that they really want to get behind and use what is still, you know, somewhat limited organizing, uh, power and person power to, to try to win, you know, some of these, some of these seats. And there's obviously assessments of the candidates and the districts and what's, what's winnable and what's not. Um, but I think. You know, we're talking about democratic primaries here, so we're also talking about um, fairly low turnout elections where you can knock on the number of doors you need to, and really, you know, really try to uh, get get the votes you need to to win. You know, ranked choice voting creates a, a, di- a bit of a different playing field, but it's still an equation where um, you know there's only so many thousands of, of votes you need to to get over the top. And so you can really target those and you can really work really hard on the ground where it's hard to do that over the over the size of, you know, a borough or or of course across the the five boroughs. So um but I think I think we've clearly seen and, and one thing I'm interested in watching in the results of the DSA slate here is does it seem like the pandemic has further uh, sort of radicalize people, right? And I don't say that pejoratively. I say, you know, are people even more open to sort of socialist ideals uh, because the pandemic has devastated things so much and shown some of the gaps in the social safety net and all sorts of issues around uh, healthcare and the economy and so on. Um, uh, so that's, that's one thing, you know, I'm really watching to see, especially in a couple of these districts that might be harder for the DSA to win. You know, Tiffany Caban, Winning her city council race is is seems like almost a foregone conclusion. You never say never, of course, and I wouldn't be shocked if she lost, but I'd be surprised. Um, but then there's other you know other districts where it's a much tougher go.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean I have a couple of questions. I mean, first of all, I was curious who you saw as the. You mentioned you thought at least three would win. Who you thought the two other DSA candidates were that have a, a strong chance of winning, as well as the three that might be in for a mm-hmm. a, a more challenging uh, uh, contest.
19: Well, you know, there, I mean, there, I'm sort of giving an estimate. I think a lot of them could be fairly close. And then, I, I you know, I'm sort of, um, you know, just giving a rough estimate that probably, you know, of the three or four or five even that are pretty close other than Caban, you know, a couple of those break the way of the DSA and maybe a couple of them don't. But I do think, you know, pretty much all of the others are are, are very competitive races. So I'm not sure, you know, I would, I would feel that safe, uh, sort of guesstimating a win for anybody other than Caban, who seems like a heavy favorite, especially coming off that district attorney race, obviously. And she, you know, cleared half the field in this city council race when she got in, um, you know, one of the races to watch in the whole city is the district 35 Brooklyn race, which is the seat currently held by Lori Cumbo, And that's where the DSA is running Michael Hollingsworth, a, a tenant activist. And there's a very strong, uh, you know, more more traditional progressive candidate, Crystal Hudson in the race, who has a lot of labor support. She's been backed by Hakeem Jeffries, who uh, has been very uh, open about his disdain for, for the DSA. Um, and that's one of the most interesting races in the whole city. Uh, you know, Brandon West in City Council District 39, which is currently Brad Lander's seat, used to be Bill de Blasio's seat, including parts of Park Slope. Um, you know, that's a very crowded field, of course, in that political hotbed of, of the park slope area. Um, he's probably got a a pretty uphill road there with a number of other, you know, candidates who've had strong roots in the district. That one seems very hard to know where, where voters are going to land there. I mean, you have five, six candidates in that race that I could see winning. Um, so a lot of, a lot of complicated dynamics in these races. And like I said, ranked choice voting really, um, you know, it, it'll it be very interesting to see where the DSA candidates fall in terms of, is this a situation where the DSA candidates get a lot of first place votes, but but there's a lot of other voters who are not that comfortable with DSA candidates, and they don't rank them second or third, and the DSA candidates even potentially lead, you know, lead the first place votes, but then lose in the instant runoff. That would be very interesting to see and, and to gauge, um, you know, where the electorate is at. I don't know that that will happen. It's just an interesting Thing to watch
0: right i have a question about kind of like the way city council works i mean once we get past these elections and people are seated um i mean there are clearly be you know progressives and maybe you know some socialists on the city council probably not a majority but a, a significant block but one thing i've been kind of curious about is like once people get into an institution like city council i think it's the same in congress where you, you know you have a, a a leadership and, and somebody comes in as a city council person, even if they come in as a block, like with DSA, how, how much does like having to sort of engage with like the leadership and the, and the institution itself, um, uh, you know, blunt some of that radicalism and and how with city council people who are elected who come in, uh, you know, with a strong left-wing platform, how how can they sort of uh, color outside the line, so to speak, and, and, and maintain a sort of a more radical politics while still being effective inside that institution because they obviously have constituents that want them to, you know, deliver benefits for their district and, and things like that. Um, how to. How, how do you how do they maintain a, a balance and, and be effective at both at being both radical and <laughs> delivering for their district
19: yeah I mean that's a great question uh this is a little bit of a of a to each their own there's different paths to do this you know watching the city council over the last almost decade uh pretty closely you know I've seen different different council members do it different ways not even you know dsa council members but just um you know there's people like For example, Jamani Williams, you know, who's in the council where if you uh, develop relationships, if you play, you know, the strategy right, if you make enough noise, if you can command enough media attention, if you hit the right, you know, the right notes in terms of sort of where the city and the politics are that you're pressing on the right issues, you know, you can get a lot done even if the speaker finds you irritating. Um, One of the best ways to get things done in the city council, of course, is to have the favor of the of the speaker. And one of the biggest things that's going to unfold after these elections is figuring out who the next city council speaker is. And that's where it will really matter whether six of the six DSA candidates win or two of the six DSA candidates win or whatever the number winds up being. Because if, uh, if for example, they all win and something like 12% of the city council's 51 seats are held by a you know, DSA elected members, well, that's, you know, that's gonna change the equation of some of the politics of the city council. Uh, if, it's, if it's much different than that, then, then, it, then it won't be quite as powerful uh, of, a, of a little caucus. Um, you know, but, but as I was saying before, there will be a number of progressive council members who are not necessarily DSA candidates who, who will also be, you know, pushing things further to the left in the next uh, council. But one of the, one of the most, uh, interesting things to watch will be what the different blocks are helping to determine the next speaker of the council. Um, and then once that is determined, there's a lot of individual choices, coalition building, et cetera, that happens for these council members to find their, you know, to find their path and try to affect change either, either as rabble rousers who are using the media more or using the inside channels more.
16: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for all of your insight, Ben Max, uh, executive editor at the Gotham Gazette. Where can people go um, if they want to follow you on Twitter, listen to your podcast, um, obviously read your work on the Gotham Gazette, which has been doing great coverage of thank the you.
19: election? Uh, Gotham is the best place to go. If you're looking for something specific, just Google Gotham Gazette and whatever it is you're looking for and I'm at TweetBenMax on Twitter, and we'll leave leave it there. Great. (laughs) Thanks for having
0: me.
16: Thanks for coming on.
0: Thank thank you, Ben. So we're going to have to leave here very quickly, but I just want to encourage our listeners, if you enjoyed listening to tonight's special election coverage, Please support WBAI so we can keep this kind of coverage coming to you. All sorts of great programs on this station. Call 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or give number two WBAI.org. Become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. All sorts of great benefits. And you get to keep community radio on the air, beaming across the New York City area. I'm John Tarleton from The Independent. I thank everybody who helped us with this broadcast. Uh, our co host Olivia Riggio, and then Natasha Santos, our field reporters, Amba Gagarian. Julia Thomas, Zion Decato, Roman Broskowski, also Kenneth Lopez provided uh, sound bites in our headlines and our uh, board engineers uh, Reggie Johnson and Max